Warning. We enter into Utopia's proper and newfound space, the education of desire. This is not the same as a moral education towards a given end. It is, rather, to open a way to aspiration, to teach desire to desire, to desire better, to desire more, and above all, desire in a different way. That's E.P. Thompson quoting Miguel Abensauer. And you got that quote. You're quoting that quote from Half-Earth Socialism by Drew Pendergrass and Troy Viteze, right? That's right. Yeah. So that's Sean Villier quoting Troy Viteze and Drew Pendergrass, quoting E.P. Thompson, quoting Miguel Abensauer. <laughs> and we expect any listeners to this who quote this from here to quote the whole chain. Yeah, and quote be like, the whole citation me. path. Please. <laughs> I heard this on Seriously Wrong. They got it from that book, et cetera, et cetera. Have a little decency, folks. Quote Please. the whole chain. Please. <laughs> You're seriously wrong. You're seriously wrong. You're seriously wrong. Seriously wrong. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. We are your hosts, Sean and Aaron, and today we have a fun interview with the authors of Half-Earth Socialism, Troy Vitesi and Drew Pendergrass, about their utopian proposals for an ecological planet worth living on. Fun and informative. I don't sell the interview short. It's, uh, it's not true. Yeah, it's, it's, also not, it's not just, it's not the just empty fun. fun of just though we're just uh, playing around, drug use fun. or something, <laughs> or even visiting a play structure. No, this is, this is infotainment. I feel like I learned a lot. I also, I learned things from this book and they, they do, this is a great utopian book. They do some really interesting stuff. They've also got a game, which can be found at www.half.earth, which is like a global planning game about trying to reduce the temperature of the earth. And the book also has some, in you know, a classic utopian kind of way, some fiction sections to help you imagine what it would be like to live in this world that they're proposing. We've been longtime proponents of utopianism on the show and the idea that if you want to make the world a better place, you kind of have to know what you're aiming at and that the practice of describing what better possible worlds might look like and like comparing and contrasting those different ideas for a utopia should be a major part of left-wing politics or politics in general the idea of like what is the better future that we're aiming at what does it look like and like let's let's uh, throw our ideas on the table i feel like there's a real synergy here between our podcast and their project here we need to at least partially orient ourselves in what we're fighting for in the future. You know, like there's short-term things that people can do working together to improve situations, but it's also, I think, essential that we have a vision of what we're fighting for and what we're aiming for. And to me, that's what the sort of utopian method is about. 
Yeah. And even if like their vision of the half earth socialism isn't exactly the same as our vision of our library socialist uh, utopian future, I think that's uh, all the better for it. We need a lot of different visions of like what a functioning, ecologically sustainable, fair, good life producing society might look like. Yeah, there might be things that come up in this episode, ideas that aren't in your utopia. And the same goes for any episode of our show. But uh, they emphasize this in the book is that having those differences as a means for conversation and as for a means of people articulating their own vision and then you know, looking at the best evidence and debating it out and hashing it out, we'll be in a much better position to build a world that we're all interested in, in building. Just to give context before we get into the interview, I think at the top level, the basic idea of half-Earth socialism is half-Earth refers to having humans inhabit and utilize half of the Earth's surface and have the other half be rewilded with sort of a, a wild nature on it. And there's multiple reasons they can get into, but one of the big reasons is that there's evidence to suggest that the larger land area you have that is wild, the more biodiversity you have. Um, and, you know, the, the climate crisis we face isn't just about CO2 in the atmosphere, although that is a major aspect. Also, a large part of it is the loss of wildlife. As we've talked about on the show before, having a more diverse wilderness is beneficial to the biosphere. It's more stable to have a variety of different animals interacting with each other. And that loss of wildlife is one of the things that poses threats to human well-being in the future. Uh, so that's what the half-Earth refers to. They also advocate for scaling back the amount of energy we use as a society, especially here in the global north, and are critical of the idea that we can just replace all fossil fuels with renewables, or they're even more critical of nuclear energy and of solar radiation management, uh, i.e. spraying chemicals into the upper atmosphere to block the sun, and they're critical of animal agriculture. And their kind of socialist planning proposal is the idea of having a global democracy where the use of resources is planned, where people participate in decisions that relate to how resources are used and what the direction the planet takes as a whole, where you have multiple plans, like a planning commission that produces multiple plans and demonstrates the benefits, drawbacks, and limits to each of them, and then have people actively participate in the design execution of those plans and deciding which of those plans to follow. It's a very interesting, broad-scale, utopian idea that, as I read the book, gave me a lot to think about. And yeah, I really enjoyed reading it. And they bring stats and numbers like they have really good reasons backing up for the things that they're saying. So it's like it's a yeah super thought provoking approach or idea for what the utopian future might look like. As usual, thank you so much to our Patreon community for allowing the show to happen. Massive, massive thanks from the bottom of our heart to everyone who's already doing that. Uh, it makes a huge difference in allowing us to keep doing the show. But also, as always, thank you for your time and attention and thought, and I hope this is as stimulating and interesting for you as it was for us. Maybe without further ado, we can uh, join our interview with the guests, which is already in progress. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it was recorded it. at a previous time. We'll time travel back to that time, to when it was being recorded, and play it. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by Governor Have a Beer With's Green Neoliberal Capitalism. Hello, my fellow state residents. I'm your governor, Governor Have a Beer With. Let me just pour myself a tall, frosty glass of delicious local beer. Mmm, I wish you were here. <laughs> so, 
We all know that we're facing a climate crisis, a climate emergency, let's say. Yeah, I'll say it, it's an emergency. But we can't scare away industry, you know, stakeholders and, and the powerful by talking about what's really needed. We, we need to compromise before we've even started. And that's why I'm a green neoliberal capitalist governor. What I like to see is an optimistic future that stays positive, you know, that looks to the future, not, not, not negative. We're tired of that negative politics in this beautiful state. We are the state of smiles. We are the state of collaboration, working together. And sea levels rising could be an investment opportunity, you know? You can invest in a company that builds enormous dams that keeps the sea level out. The catastrophic collapse of an agriculture system, it's a setback for sure, don't get me wrong, but we can create obscure financial instruments that help people out in need, like starvation bonds or new forms of insurance, new even more profitable forms of insurance for climate disasters. We need to start reducing our carbon emissions and our methane emissions in this state right away, as soon as humanly possible, after I'm reelected two more times which is when it officially starts in our plan. And in the meanwhile, we're just gonna need to pump a little bit of sulfur into the atmosphere to bleach the sky white and keep out that solar radiation. Just to buy time until we can start reducing those carbon emissions. And you can invest in that company. It's gonna be profitable. I know I did. I did before we even announced this program. That's how dedicated to this great state I am. Look, I've heard the demands, the incoherent frothing demands from the maniacs in the street. They're not real citizens, as far as I'm concerned. We can't reduce meat consumption, dairy consumption. Those are our industry partners. And we can't raise carbon taxes. Everyone will get mad and kick me out of office, and then we're going to have, you know, a fascist theocratic dictatorship. And, and what do you think they're going to do? Cut carbon emissions? They probably won't even pump sulfur. We need to be pragmatic. And that's why I'm asking for your vote this year for my green neoliberal capitalism. And that's why I'm the sponsor of this week's Seriously Wrong. Mm, the spear is incredible. I'm sure you might be able to relate to that, but I guess that just shows how close we really are in our sort of view of the world. And don't I have a friendly face? Governor Haveabeerwitz, green neoliberal capitalism. Putting a friendly face on institutional capitulation to the corporate non-response to climate change. I'm proud sponsor of today's episode of Seriously Wrong. This week, we are talking to Drew Pendergrass and Troy Viteze about their book, Half-Earth Socialism, A Plan to Save the Future from Extinction, Climate Change, and Pandemics. I really enjoyed the book. It's a great ecological book, unabashedly utopian, with a lot of fascinating ideas in it. So first, maybe, would you like to introduce yourselves and talk about where this book came from? Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm Drew. I'm a climate scientist and a writer, and Troy is a historian. And yeah, the book we started writing it because we were both disappointed in some way with how environmental writing and debate in the environmental world was going. We thought that it lacked maybe a certain utopian method. And by utopian method, I mean a way of looking at the whole, a way of looking at all aspects of the environmental crisis and how they intersect, not just climate change, but also the loss of biodiversity and all these other crises, and also how solutions require a whole vision of society as well. So as in, if capitalism is the source of the environmental crisis, then focusing debates on only like single issues like nuclear power or other things, 
is misleading because it doesn't capture the whole of the crisis. So because this is such a big crisis and because solutions are so complex, we wanted to have this kind of holistic approach. And for us, utopias are a way of thinking about many things at once. Yeah, I think we should also stress that we do quite different things. I mean, I'm an environmental historian and I work mostly on neoliberal environmental thought. And Drew, when I met him, was an undergrad in physics, and now he's doing his PhD in environmental engineering and looking at earth system science and satellite imagery and working on data simulation, which I'm sure Drew can explain better than, than I can. But what happened was we met because we were both at Harvard and we wanted to work together. And then we, I think we realized that we could write a much more interesting thing together because of our different interdisciplinary backgrounds. And we had to find a way to uh, have a language to work on a shared project, but it's been very rewarding and we're working on many other projects together since then. Utopianism, it's a little bit of a loaded term on the left. There's a long history of sort of conflicts over whether one should be utopian or not. In the context of 2023, with worsening ecological crises, going through this horrible pandemic these last couple of years, what is utopianism at its best? How can utopianism be a practical tool for people who are interested in creating a, a habitable future for us and our children? I think uh, utopias do three things really well. I think the first thing they do is they provide a way to talk about ends, like the ends of politics. Like, what is our dream? Like, if we won, what would we get? And it turns out that actually a lot of conflict on the left is because we have different ends. Like, we have a different dream of what the end state is. Is the end state just sort of like 1950s America, but maybe less racist? Like, uh, we have New Deal, but maybe it's more cool. Or is it a more deep transformation? And if you have different answers to that question, you have different politics. And utopias are a way to kind of clarify where someone's ends are. And that can illustrate maybe why there are strategic differences. And the second thing a utopia can do is it can think about the role of technology. So utopias throughout history, they often are books that are really concerned about technological change. You know, like William Morris's News from Nowhere kind of has this vision of like artisanal work. And this contrasts with other utopias that maybe are more like robot or steampunk or fully automated luxury communism sort of ideas. And uh, utopias are a way to think about the role of technology and how it can be kind of transformed into a better world. And then, I mean, utopias are also, you know, finally, a uh, third thing they do is, is a source of encouragement. They're a way to kind of keep a social movement going. If people listening have been involved in activism, you know that it's mostly losing, like you mostly lose. And then a lot of the work you do is like knock on doors, hand out flyers. I mean, whatever your strategy is, it's a lot of rejection. And if you don't have a vision of where you're going, it's pretty easy to get bogged down in the challenges of the day-to-day -day and eventually maybe lose, lose steam. So you know, I, I really like this line from the historian Robin D.G. Kelly that no social movement has not been utopian. Like all of them have a utopian core, even if they choose not to, to focus on it, because without it, you can't keep going. I think also the division between utopian and scientific socialism is overdrawn. And I think if you actually read the original texts by Marx and Engels, you know, they definitely have a, a critique of utopian socialism, but it's not an outright rejection of it. And they say repeatedly that the earlier generations of utopian socialists like Robert Owen or Percy Bysshe Shelley were incredibly important for the movement. And I think it's only quite late in the history of socialism that you have this 
scientistic to borrow a, a phrase from Hayek, conception of socialism, as in this, this idea that something has the appearance of being scientific, but actually isn't, right? And you have just the veneer of, of science. So I think uh, there's a, like a bad kind of socialism that thinks there's this ineluctable process that will lead to a, a certain stages of history and, and social development. And then there's a certain development also in terms of technology, which doesn't you know, actually bear out. So I think this is a, a major site of conflict. But and as Drew was saying, I think it's also a matter of like values and aesthetics uh, as well. That's why we also see that, that big difference. And I think it's also a way that people want to avoid having conflict within what is a fairly small and besieged group. Because once we actually start saying what we actually want, then, yeah, we actually disagree with uh, a lot of uh, you know, uh, former colleagues and comrades. So it's... It's a problem, but I think we can't avoid it. And, you know, we wrote this book because, you know, Toni Morrison once said, you, you write the book you want to read, right? And we just want to imagine what does it actually look like to get out of the environmental crisis? What does it look like to have a good society? And that kind of a, a imagining led us to utopian thought. I found it interesting that you decided to take a large chunk of the book and do like a fiction section. Like you're not just describing what the world would look like. You're doing the sort of thing of like, oh, a person wakes up in this utopian society and kind of gets shown around. And I'm curious just like what the thought process was like or how you arrived at that rather than just describing it, wanting to kind of show it. Yeah, I think we're very inspired by these kind of flowering utopian books from the 19th century, these just many, many novels where they tried to handle contemporary debates about all sorts of issues important to the left by writing novels. And the point was that these would be a popular form that could both win people over, but also kind of be a fun way to think about all these debates and also a way to think about debates where the essays can't. Like an essay, it's hard to give you a shape of life or like kind of an impression of what you want or a feel for what, you know, the everyday might be. And I think we wanted to include that. Yeah. So we wanted to have an homage, homage to that. And we also liked it better than a traditional conclusion. I mean, the book does have a short conclusion, but we thought uh, because we're building up sort of a complex set of arguments that we'll probably talk about a little bit later, this fiction was a way to kind of summarize what had been said in a new way and also kind of fill in the gaps about, you know, what a utopia would feel like, which I think is that kind of feeling dimension is really important in, in utopias and essays can't do that. I think it's funny that when people read the book, they assume that I wrote the fiction chapter because I'm the humanist and Drew's the scientist, but it was Drew who wrote it. So it's, uh, <laughs> and I have to explain that. And I think it's also funny where we wanted to initially just write like a little bit and the initial idea was like 500 words, you know, just to lead into the conclusion. And then Drew just kept writing more and more and uh, it became a chapter in its own right. And I, But I think, you know, I'm not a literary scholar, but I think the utopian project almost automatically leads to fiction, right? Because what fiction can do is that it can imagine life in its entirety in a way that a set of statistics or, you know, a set of arguments cannot. So I think there's a reason why people are just constantly drawn uh, to fiction in the history of utopian thought and why we could not avoid it even without trying, basically. But it was useful for us as a thought experiment to really think about what life would be like in that society. The title of the book is Half-Earth Socialism. And so for people who might not be familiar with the concept of 
half earth what does it mean to have you know half earth socialism what does it mean to sort of withdraw from half the earth and rewild half the world where does this idea come from what's the empirical basis of it um, and what makes it socialist in your vision i think what we wanted to do by calling the book half earth socialism rather than like socialism in the anthropocene or you know climate socialism or whatever and which i think would be an easier titles in a way and less controversial is that I think what socialists need to do is they need to think seriously about what are the problems facing us that are very difficult in terms of the environmental crisis and what are the really difficult problems in terms of constructing socialism right what is socialist democracy you know what is um, planning you know how does this actually work how do we have a society without markets and so forth and I think we need to really confront that and said that because a lot of lefties and a lot of environmentalists they try to avoid uh, these problems. And we, we wanted to put that front and center, and that's really with the title. So conservation is definitely a very controversial issue because you know, it has a terrible past. And, and we delve into this in the book, and we talk about where the half of the idea comes from, which is E.O. Wilson's work, but also these other conservationists in the Wild Foundation and, and the Wildlands Network you know, so groups from the U.S. and from South Africa, and they have terrible histories. I mean, they're Malthusian, they're racist, they work with the, the apartheid government and so forth. And even Wilson himself is not uh, a great guy. I mean, after the book went to press, it turns out that he was having this correspondence with this, you know, race realist uh, idiot. I think he was at Western or something like that in, in Canada. And he does this whole thing on studying penis size and IQ of different uh, different you know, social groups. And uh, Wilson said, you know, I, I like your work, but I can't openly uh, defend you. So unfortunately, most environmentalists, and most conservationists are bad in, in some way. But the point is not to simply say, therefore, we have to get rid of conservation. Right. And I think if the left does that, the left is saying, you know, we do not care about plants and animals and the earth system uh, as a whole, and, and we are okay with extinction. And then you have to begin to wonder what makes extinction okay, or what gives us this right of mastery over other uh, creatures. And that can only lead to authoritarian or reactionary politics. So we have to have a socialist conservation. And if you actually uh, save half the world for nature preserves, which would be increasing the amount of protected land around three or five-fold, you would stop the sixth extinction event where many species will go extinct over the next century, and you would have to rewild lots of uh, uh, land and, and sea uh, to do that. So this is a major goal, and this is a goal that is just as important as climate change, which I think gets lost in the, a lot of the conversation amongst the left, which just focuses on CO2. There's many other problems we're facing with the environmental crisis. And I think the, the problem of half-earth centers the problem of land scarcity as well, because that we have to also have land for farming. We also need to have land for energy um, production, especially as renewable energy uh, infrastructure takes up a lot more land. And to actually balance out these competing interests will matter. And I think the half-earth idea reflects this humility, as in we cannot have a socialism based on dominating the world to create this endless abundance, but it has to be a socialism that gives the good life for everyone and stabilizes the earth system, but there will always be some kind of scarcity because we cannot fully dominate the world, because that's an impossible uh, task. We would need to deal with scarcity uh, fairly and intelligently, and that's a very serious problem that we have to deal with. I think 
Our book works on two levels. Uh, on the first level, we are making an argument for what we call scientific utopianism, this idea of uh, you know, having uh, detailed blueprints for the future and that these blueprints could form a grounds of ecological debate that's more productive than kind of focusing on single issues. And then the, the second level of the book is that we propose our specific environmental utopia. We propose our specific scientific utopian blueprint for the future. And that's where this half-earth idea comes in. You know, as Troy said, the half-earth, you know, kind of emerges from empirical studies of biodiversity on islands, island biogeography. So land area is proportional to species biodiversity. This observation has been borne out by decades of studies. The half-earth idea comes from a mathematical extrapolation by which if you were to protect half of the earth, you would prevent the vast majority of mass extinctions. And that as you degrade more and more land, you cause more and more extinctions. And in the book, we, we challenge some of these conservationist ideas that Troy was saying by also talking about how conservation does not equal the total absence of humans. It equals the absence of a certain kind of human domination, right? So for example, in indigenous lands, biodiversity is higher than in traditional nature preserves. So I want to stress that our vision of conservation is not incompatible with this sort of land back demand um, and uh, can kind of rhyme with these other other movements. But we still want to keep that half-earth idea centered in the book because it really highlights this really important dimension of environmental politics that I think has been under-discussed. Uh, yeah, I've found since I started reading the book, I've floated the concept of preserving half of wild nature to people. And it's something that people are really positive about, like it's just something intuitive about it, that people who are fairly apolitical, they understand that we're in an environmental crisis and it clicks for them. But it seems like, I guess, the challenge of increasing the amount of protected areas that much is issues related to dispossession or, or displacement. Do you see in protecting half the earth, do we just lose out on like, say, farmland that we had before? Or is it is there chunks of the earth where there used to be larger amounts of like human population that needs to be, you know, moved elsewhere? Or, or like, what, what sort of challenges do you see in, in that realm? And how do you do it in a way that's equitable, socialist, that doesn't fall into these these worst traps of like, historic kind of like eco-fascist movements? And when it comes to say like the global south, indigenous populations and stuff can be disproportionately affected by grandiose schemes to, to make the world fit a blueprint. Save half the world for nature preserves, which would be increasing the amount of protected land around three or five fold. Well, I think it's funny where when people hear the word conservation and biodiversity, they think about the global south, but it's the global north that has the most work to do in a lot of ways to actually make this a reality. I mean, to actually lower energy consumption substantially, you know, Canada, it's around 12,000 watts per person. To get down to 2,000 would require a massive infrastructural change in terms of transport and housing and so forth. But also meat production is much higher in the global north. And let's say in Europe, which really prides itself on being this like eco superstar internationally, they're really pathetic when it comes to biodiversity. I mean, they have the lowest levels of, let's say, large carnivores, uh, for instance, uh, compared to anywhere else. Uh, if you actually look at you know, UN's definition for like a biodiverse, you know, well-functioning ecosystem, only 2% of Europe actually counts as like, a well-preserved ecosystem, right? So as in, to get that to 50% 
would be extremely difficult in Europe, but still needs to be done. So I think one should think about this global burden and also look at people living in the global north and think what would they have to do in, uh, in terms of actually achieving uh, those goals. I think it's not easy to be sure. But as we're saying with the book, the book wants to look at these hard trade-offs. The book was written because we were not satisfied with existing like easy solutions for many environmentalists, like, oh, like we'll just have uh, nuclear power or fast breeders or something like that, or geoengineering will save the day. Like there's going to be a cost regardless. And we should also see that with fossil fuels. And I think when people say we need to totally decarbonize, of course, it's going to change how many people live and how we get our energy. It's going to put miners out of work, and, 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 right? But the idea is like, how can that be managed in a, a just way to make sure that the people who've done the least to cause the crisis pay, pay the least as well? I mean, in a half a socialist world, there are no, no rich people, right? I mean, like you would have to have incredible leveling of society regardless, just for egalitarian reasons. But you would also want people who've done the most to destroy the world to also pay the cost. So that really means uh, definitely industrial meat production would have to be destroyed because meat production takes up a huge percentage of the world's surface, something like 80% of all agricultural land is related to, to livestock uh, industries. And of that, that's around 40% of the total inhabitable area, which is like four Canada's, like four billion hectares. So that's a huge amount of area that can be freed up by destroying that industry, which again, is not to say that's an easy task, but this crisis is so severe, we should not be surprised that actually addressing it uh, fundamentally does not have a, a very high cost in some ways. But the, the goal is to do that fairly. And, no, and Drew and I are working more on ideas of socialist democracy, and we're building upon Neurath's approach, which is looking at a series of total plans, and the people are choosing uh, one of those plans democratically. And those plans will be based on you know, your carbon budget, you know, what extinction rate you're happy with, you know, food production, energy quotas, and so forth. And Drew even made a linear program to, for people to play around with uh, in terms of seeing the tensions between those goals. But the idea is, you know, hopefully people would see that destroying the meat industry and having mass rewilding is actually the easiest way to deal with these problems, right, compared to geoengineering and, and so forth. Just to kind of reinforce Troy's point about land use, right, like livestock takes up something like 77% of agricultural land. Agricultural land takes up between 40 and 50% of the Earth's surface. That is the thing to target if you want to protect this land. And the vast majority of these animals are eaten by the global rich, right? Or are underwritten by a form of production that is deeply environmentally degrading to just grow a bunch of crops to feed to these animals that have miserable lives. And then you sell this cheap subsidized meat as a way to kind of cover up the fact that you're growing mostly wheat and soy and corn. It's a way of doing monocultures at scale. And I think confronting this directly is is really useful because one of the main actually existing reasons for the murder of environmental activists and indigenous activists in South America, Latin America, for example, is ranching, right? Ranching and mining, basically. These, these interests that go into these lands and basically take them and expropriate them for capitalism and murder people who stand in their way. I mean, these are the forces that what we imagine as, as a socialist conservation would be would be up against and and we can kind of imagine the the people who we could we could work with and the 
the kind of land back vision of, of conservation that you could use to replace this deforesting the Amazon for beef, right? Yeah, something I've noticed is that the the sort of like the idea of privileged vegetarians or privileged uh, environmentalists being in tension with the developing world is such a, a potent trope to people that often it's deployed in circumstances where it completely is out of touch with the actual like uh, empirical issues at hand. Like, yeah, well, what you're saying makes perfect sense about the the land use of meat cultivation and then who in the world is actually eating most of the meat. But yet there is something very intuitively tropey appealing to be like, is this some sort of, you know, privileged first world plot to take everything away from the people who already have nothing? But it doesn't seem to be the case. I think there's something very psychological going on in that I think I think a lot of people don't want to stop eating meat. But it's also sort of kind of in ways, I mean, I, I you know, ate meat for years before I became vegetarian and then vegan. You kind of want to justify it because it's sort of hard to justify in a way, like how is it okay to, you know, kill all these animals, right? Uh, and so I think this leads to like almost a psychological reaction of being very strongly militantly opposed and you want to kind of find hypocrisy or whatever in, in people who propose this. And I found, I, I myself did this too until I, I gave up meat for environmental reasons and then gradually became able to kind of care about the animals more because I think that wall of defense fell down a little bit. I don't know. I think there's something very Freudian that goes on when people talk about meat, which I think is part of why our book was received uh, by some uh, very negatively. Yeah, even even in The Ecologist, which is you know obviously an environmental publication, it was the vegan stuff that we got hammered on. It was like, you know... You, which audience, you know, would, would want to hear about vegan communism? Because obviously socialists don't, environmentalists don't either. It's, it's definitely the most contentious part of the book. But to me, it seems crazy to say, you know, veganism is, is impossible, but planning the global economy or having, you know, decarbonization or you know, centuries-long geoengineering projects, like that's easy. Like those things are much harder than veganism. Right. And uh, that we should be talking about veganism all the time. And people get annoyed because there are lots of annoying vegans and there are lots of annoying environmentalists. I mean, in the way that there are lots of annoying Marxists. I mean, if you work in these circles, you know what people are like and why some people get turned off. But I think you have to look at the ideas and not the people sometimes. I mean, I went once to an environmental event and they were trying to raise money for probably like a questionable rhino preserve that was you know heavily militarized and dependent on uh, rich people coming down there to wherever it was in, in eastern africa and they were serving canapes full of like bacon and, and like filet mignon and all that so there's tons of hypocrisy but that the point is not to just criticize them leave it aside but to radicalize it right uh, th this is a point of interest for me it's a little bit irrelevant but hypocrisy is something that i've i'm just i'm not sure if hypocrisy really works like theoretic like we we d we dedicate so much political space to like the pointing out of hypocrisy and like sure it's good the republican senator blah 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 he did this thing you caught him violating himself or whatever sure sometimes but overall it feels like hypocrisy is like this license to do whatever you want as long as you just say like yeah i'm doing this evil thing and then you're not a hypocrite anymore and it's all good it's all gravy you can do whatever you want as long as you're like yeah i'm evil i'm gonna go kill these people it's like well at least he's not a hypocrite but if you go out and say like 
we should do things this way. And it's like, ah, but you had to drive to work, didn't you? Uh, you're a piece of shit for that. I don't know. I'm a little bit skeptical about the whole construct of hypocrisy. I feel like it's like this anti-ethics trap. Like obviously being extremely hypocritical in a way that's like over the top is is worthy of criticism, but this really light kind of criticism, like this really light hypocrisy that's everywhere thing, it just, it feels like this way of trapping people into feeling like they're not allowed to make ethical claims anymore. And sorry, that's just, it's like, that's my soapbox. I'll only take one this episode, but. No, you're right. And I think the the way that argument goes is then we are all a little hypocritical and therefore we'll stop criticizing each other. And therefore it's like this politics of, of silence or this, uh, you know, you cannot then complain or you cannot criticize anymore because we'll actually agree to not criticize each other. We'll agree that it's okay to be hypocritical. And it's a very conservative move actually uh, but i think we have to move beyond that right and move beyond these cheap politics and now we go to the meat guy being offered a free vegan meal at a company picnic all right burgers steaks company barbecue let's do it we have some black bean burgers there's quinoa burgers wait what? Mushroom burgers. What? Manager, there's like no meat. Is this some sort of joke? Oh, no. I was tasked by the board with helping to lower the environmental impact that our company has. And I noticed that eating meat actually has a huge impact on the environment. So I thought, okay, if I'm buying food for a ton of people, might as well go vegan with it. That's a great way uh, to I, reduce I our need... ecological footprint. <laughs> I need meat look at my shirt read my shirt back to me uh, and he says every day i'll be making that bacon yeah for breakfast every day so you had bacon today already yes bacon and eggs and oh, milk. Great. i mean i thought there was gonna this be is a company birds. meal i'm not i'm not here to tell you what you're eating at home what do i look like a tiny tweety bird to you or do i look tough well, you definitely don't look like a tiny bird i'm not eating this bird food no, this is human food. Bird food's usually just more like a bag of seeds and grains. No, and it's total bird food. I think some birds eat like worms or fish. Well, worms or would fish. be an improvement on this. Ooh, look fish at this. is bird food. Ooh, stinky. This food stinks, bro. All of it? Yeah. Have you smelled Wait. every individual well, dish? Hey, give me I a think second. this one smells great. You don't like oh. that smell of garlic? That's gross, man. Uh, I gotta protest this. I'm going to HR. Yeah, that's certainly you're right. I need my so, meats. I'm not gonna advise you. you know what? I'm going across the street. For see that barbecue that? joint over there? Uh, yeah, barbecue ribs. It says barbecue ribs. So yes. for everyone here, how many people we have here? 26, 27. I'm gonna uh, buy two two barbecue ribs for everyone in the co- in the company. And if they don't want it, I'll eat it. I really I'm prefer you wouldn't do that. It's just meat. kind of extra food for no reason. I'm going to spend all my remaining savings on meat. I mean, you should at least give some of these a try. Some delicious, high-protein vegan cheese there. Cashews think, and nutritional yeast. There's you think a, I'm evil at my heart? You think that I love and relish the death of animals? I bathe in their blood and dance in the moonlight, dripping from my lips. A monster, a maniac, a werewolf to you, a, a demon? Is that no. how you all see me? Is that the official position of our company? I'm a bad person because I wear a bacon shirt? This was more just an environmental choice for us. So you think I'm killing the environment now? You think I'm evil and I want to kill the environment? I think we all make suboptimal environmental choices and the That's solutions the official position to the environment of our company is now? systemic. 
not individual. So I think you it'd think be better I'm a vampire. If you... you think I'm an evil vampire. And no. then my bacon shirt represents something dark about me. Something twisted. Like a joker. You I think mean, I'm the joker? No more dark than the fact that I like to leave all the lights on in my house. Ah, so you're a hypocrite too. So yeah, you're well, admitting, I... you're freely admitting you're a hypocrite. You're trying to bust into my life. You're trying to knock down the doors. You're trying to make me drop my meat diet. Drop eating my meat for meals. No, it's just, it's just for the one meal. Ooh, 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 ooh. I just imagine one meal. Ooh, sickening. Like a, eating like a tiny Tweety bird. Why do you hate me? Why do you think I'm a bad person? Just to for HR if you do talk to them. My position is not that you're evil. I didn't say that. So this is what our country's come to. I've been made a criminal in my own workplace. Yeah, not really, but um, okay, I'm going you are across. welcome to have some free food. Let me smell it. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. It's sickening. It's viscerally sickening to behold, and it's ideologically and theoretically sickening for what it means about our country. At least try some of the vegan desserts. We got vegan chocolate cake, vegan pumpkin pie. Ugh. Vegan oat milk. Some eggs and milk. Milkshake. You cannot milk an oat. Uh, no, I think you actually cook it a little bit for oat milk and then blend it up. I, and can, but is anyone honest anymore? Almonds don't have nipples. And I think as a culinary okay. term, milk isn't like we're not using it like biologically in terms of what mammals produce. Well, it's it's more just like culinarily. You can live in lie if you want, but I live in truth. I'm just saying functionally, it functions as a milk. That's actually why I'm being fired. Because I spoke in truth. No, you're not not fired. No, look at everyone. They're all looking at me. Look at these faces they're making. Well, I mean, you're allowed to quit if you want, but just to be clear, you are not fired. What are you implying? That I should emphatically not fired. Is that your way of firing me? No. Just because I hold a different belief? You're not fired and that you're free to. Have some delicious dessert if you want, or main course. There's really? still plenty of mains left so over. So this is the official policy. Just some of the fries, company. maybe. There's fries. Do you hate fries? It's not fried in animal oil. No, they're fried in vegetable <laughs> oil. <laughs> no thanks. Everyone's gone woke. You want me fired? You want me dead? You want to drag me out in the street? Let he is who is without sin cast the first stone. I'm waiting. Oh, that's right. I'm not the evil one. You are, for your judgment. Just the way you judge me. I admit it, I'm evil. I'm a terrorist. You happy? You know, you could be both not right and not a terrorist. Oh no, it's good. It's for the best. Companies should go vegan. Yeah, no, I Perfect. totally agree. Yeah, that's the, yeah, that's where our country's going to. Hey, yeah, you came around. Yeah, this is great. Oh yeah, I've come around. I'm going to eat some right now. Oh, this is a bean burger? Yeah. Mm, mm, oh, that's even better than the corpse of an animal, if you think about it. <laughs> uh, I went to college. Oh, that's so good. It's, it's not really trying to be meat. It's really just doing its own thing. Mmm, yum. That's like, because the beans are actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally with you. Yes, I'm totally with you. I am totally with you all. I am a robot like you. I believe in whatever government tells me. I need oil for my gears. I will use almond milk, oat milk on my gears. You know, one thing I love about these staff dinners uh, is just getting to know more of the staff. Oh, this salad doesn't have chicken in it. Mm-hmm. That's what I like, beep boop. Thank you for telling me, government. I would have never made the right choice by myself because I'm evil. Beep boop boop boop. 
Does anyone have any little half moon spectacles? Because I want to squint my eyes at the back of these containers to make sure that there's no meat products in it. I want to spend all my time on that now. Oh, well, I, at this dinner, you don't have to worry about it. They're all, so it's all vegan. So this is how democracy dies. With everyone awkwardly, quietly looking at you. Well, I mean, you are the most interested. Everyone's just kind of eating, and so you want something to look at. And yeah, you're soak making it up. Scene. I thought you were all looking at me because you silently agreed. But now I realize you're all looking at me because you're all eating, your hands are full, and I'm doing something in a public place. Yep. Soak it up. The Joker's dancing for you all. And you're pushing him further and further into the meat-soaked depths. Okay, I'm going across the street. Because it's sickening. Actually, it tasted all right, but maybe I'll have a little bit more before I go. Yeah, fill on up. I mean, it's free, right? You don't, you'll have to pay across the street. And that was the meat guy giving his opinions at the company picnic. And now back to our show. When we're talking about a planetary veganism in the context of utopia, uh, some people intuitively are going to be like, that's not my utopia. I want to keep eating my stuff. Uh, can't we make some next generation nuclear reactors? Maybe we'll even develop an even better one just around the corner. We'll start building them everywhere. We'll get all the energy we ever need. We'll be super, super cheap. We'll get vats of meat in laboratories. Like, can we not keep all the luxury of the world and turn everyone into billionaires in terms of what they're able to consume and balance that with the environmental crisis with you know advanced next generation technologies in the book, you criticize a few technological demi-utopia, as you call it. So yeah, maybe starting with nuclear, this, this one just came up recently on our Twitter as well. Some people were arguing in our comments about the viability of nuclear. It's a very common thing on the socialist left right now that there's this floating idea that nuclear is this sort of panacea that capitalism is unwilling to embrace and that we as socialists need to embrace nuclear. And by doing so, we're going to be able to make sure that everyone has filet mignon every day and that we're all going to be able to live in McMansions or or drive Teslas. What's your response to the sort of nuclear demi-utopianism of the uh, Promethean left, we'll say? Yeah, I think this is a really important question. I think this is where I think a bit of uh, this scientific utopian perspective is really useful because what I would say is, all right, show me your plan, right? Show me what is your like proposal? Like how many power plants does your vision require? Like how many, where will they be? What fuels will they use? How will they be mined? You know, what is the plan, right? And the reason I say this is because, you know, the game of decarbonization, right? The game of like getting us off of fossil fuels is basically to generate clean electricity, you know, that doesn't emit carbon dioxide, and then put everything that currently doesn't use electricity onto the grid. So it's sort of a two-step process. Right now, in the U.S., something like 70% or more of our energy use is not on the electrical grid. It's in things like driving cars or industrial processes, these things like making steel. These things all require burning of fuels. And decarbonizing that and getting onto the grid is not easy. It requires either creating a form of synthetic fuel, using electricity to kind of make fuel, or you know, burning biofuels, so growing plants and then burning them as fuel. Both of these have challenges. The challenge of making synthetic fuels, like using CO2 and making jet fuel out of it, so that when you burn it, it just goes back to CO2, net neutral in terms of carbon. You know, The problem with that is you, it takes a huge amount of energy to suck the carbon out, turn it into jet fuel, and then burn it again. 
to the extent that there was a nature paper that came out recently uh, and was talking about a much more efficient way of making synthetic jet fuel. And still it would require, you know, building 1 million megawatt towers just will just take the sunlight and concentrate it into these this jet fuel. And it would still require a massive amount of electricity being fed into. So it's just these prospects of replacing fossil fuels with these alternatives are hard, right? They're efficiency problems. Fossil fuels are amazing. They are really great. It's like millions of years of sunlight that's been concentrated and buried underground. It is not easy to replace that. The fantasy that you can just continue flying the same number of flights or making the same amount of steel or whatever, and just, you know, magically replace the fossil fuels with electricity, it would require building many, many times over the current amount of electricity generation. Like, you know, for example, direct air capture, right? This is a method of sucking carbon dioxide out of the air and then burying it underground. This would be a way of sequestering carbon, you know, with some of the more efficient projections of, of this technology's efficiency, you would need something like 14 times our current electricity generation to undo one year's worth of emission. So, you know, the idea that you can just build a bunch of nuclear power plants and make that happen. I mean, good luck, right? Good luck. And that's putting aside, that's just to replace what we have now. That's not even giving everyone filet mignon yet. Like, I just don't know how many earths you'll need, right? Show me the plan. This is why we are skeptical <laughs> of these approaches. We talk about James Hansen, who's the famous scientist uh, in 1988 who testified to Congress about global warming. He had this plan to say, we'll increase the number of reactors tenfold over the next generation. And that means building more than 100 reactors every year for yeah, 30 years. And that would just, I, I forget the exact number, it was something that it would replace half or maybe all electrical production. But, you know, trying to make that many reactors means you would actually run out of good uranium deposits very quickly. And then you would have to use the, the crappier deposits, which take a lot more carbon to actually mine. And then the carbon intensity of nuclear goes up a lot. And therefore, it is, it's, it's useless to actually fight global warming. I mean, you're based in Vancouver. There's a great national film board movie about the nuclear industry just that's called uranium and it's about all the horrible things that happen when you have a uranium mine nearby your community and this often targets uh indigenous communities the most who, who live by these horrible infrastructural projects and then we have to think about other projects so at hansen and, and these other people realize that uranium is probably going to run out so we need to have breeder reactors but fast breeders don't work at all They've been trying to make them work for decades and spending you know, hundreds of billions of dollars on these things, but they keep catching fire all the time because the coolant combusts with air. So if there's any leak, it just catches fire. And that's not great for a nuclear reactor. And uh, we can talk about fusion or thorium or these mini reactors, but none of these look very good. So uh, the other thing one can say is that the nuclear movement is the only mass environmental movement we've actually seen and actually see have some success. So for environmentalists to be pro-nuclear is the best way to demobilize the environmental movement, basically. But we wrote that part of the book, you know, with some friends in mind, really. Like there's, you know, I'm friends with uh, Andreas Mom, for instance, and he was, uh, he was on board with vegetarianism and all this, but he was very pro-nuclear. And I was just like, this is this does not make any sense. So we wrote this like long section just to attack that, like, as in like our, our our friends on the left should give up these these fantasies of uh, nuclear saving the day. Yeah, I actually copy and pasted that section entirely from an ebook into a group chat recently because there was a lot of 
misunderstandings there, I thought. And I just read that section. I found it very persuasive. Another one of these demi-utopias is uh, solar radiation management, or SRM. I recently saw some blue checks in the new sense, not cultural elites like it was a couple of years ago, but blue checks in the sense of you know, divorced dads who invested in Bitcoin. I saw, a blue, <laughs> I saw a blue check talking about like, oh, this SRM thing. It's so the environmentalists refuse to do this one easy thing that would just end the environmental crisis right now. But they're too ideologically committed. They won't do this one simple thing, which is like spray, I guess, particulate matter into the, the atmosphere to block the sun, um, like Mr. Burns. But yeah, so SRM, what's, uh, maybe we could start with a little bit of a steel man of it. What is, what's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? So solar radiation management is basically an idea that you know, the way climate system works is there's energy that comes in from the sun, and then there is greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that kind of act as a blanket that trap that energy. If you want to cool the planet, there are maybe two obvious options from that simple model. One is to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere like not emitting them. The other way is to reduce the amount of sun that comes into the atmosphere. And while that might not occur to people other than Mr. Burns, it's been kind of discussed for a long time. The method would be to fly a, a plane up to the stratosphere and then sulfur dioxide or, or whatever other particles, some proposals are for uh, little diamonds or something. And then these would scatter light and this would reduce the amount of energy that hits the surface and, and cool the climate. It is not controversial that it would cool the climate. That is pretty much guaranteed. The problem is, what else would it do? And this is where we, uh, we don't know. The atmosphere uh, is a very chaotic system. Our models of the stratosphere are not especially good. So, for example, if you're spraying the sulfur into the stratosphere, you're going to degrade the ozone layer. That's where the ozone lives. You're going to affect climate circulation in ways that we don't really understand. We also don't really have a lot of evidence of what would happen if we were to put all this stuff in the stratosphere. Like people listening might know about the uh, the story behind the book Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, The Year Without a Summer. These writers all retreat up to the mountains because there's no summer that year and they kind of hang out in misery while they write this book. And there was famines throughout the world. That was because a volcanic eruption launched a bunch of sulfur into the stratosphere and cooled global climate by about three degrees Celsius which is probably what we'd want to do at the end of the century if we wanted to use solar geoengineering as a way to avert the climate crisis, a permanent year without a summer, right? And what, what that would do, we just don't know. And so we were very strongly critical of this idea, but I want to stress also that we think this is the most likely way that capitalism is going to deal with climate change. The reason why is because it's cheap to do solar radiation management. It would be a few billion dollars a year. It's cheap enough that Elon Musk could just do it if he wanted to. There are also some recent research that's talking about how in the Biden administration right now, there's lots of uh, money for geoengineering research and lots of interest in geoengineering as a possible solution. I can see this as a scientist going to even little conferences. There's all sorts of new funding lines up for geoengineering that you can see it at, presented at all these conferences. There's lots of support for it. My advisor and many people in my field, which is specifically on chemical reactions in the atmosphere, think this is a horrible idea. I uh, think this is a disaster. But there is a sense among some scientists who are kind of apolitical that this is inevitable. And their role as a scientist is simply to do harm mitigation, right? Like the, the role of your research is like, you know, if this is inevitable because they don't see any other way to do climate change, to solve climate change, they see, you know, capitalism is just going to keep doing capitalism. 
they want to just be like, okay, well, let's come up with the way that will kill the least people. That's sort of the research project. It's a kind of a depressing form of apolitical realism, maybe. So that's that's one of the reasons why we talk about it in the book. I think uh, you know one of the things it would do is is bleach the sky white partially. So you know if you're listening to this thirty years down the road and you're under a white sky, you know, uh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> uh, but hopefully we can still avoid that future. Yeah, the thing that's crazy about all this is. I guess the left's attitude. First of all, we're not talking about this very much. If you go and talk to your barber or something, they probably haven't heard of it. Or you talk to your uncle or whatever. Even though, again, as Drew's saying, it's extremely likely it will start and probably relatively soon. Like my guess is within 10 years or something like that. Both sides uh, in, in the US support it. They both Democrats and Republicans. It's been like a toy for neoliberal think tanks for a long time. But you also have people like Bill Gates. You have Nathan Holdren, who was Obama's science advisor. You know, all you have a even there's a Californian congressman who's allocated like four billion dollars for for research on geoengineering, and he's a Democrat. So I mean, it's, it's both sides, but also on the left. I mean, there's like Holly Jean Buck, who people may know, who even describes herself as a geoengineer and kind of writes about this like friendly geoengineering. And there isn't enough pushback, I would say, from lefties on this. And this is, I think, links back to the utopian problem. Because the left doesn't have its own future that it wants to fight for, we're constantly being co-opted by neoliberals, right? So again, neoliberalism came up with, uh, you know, SRM a long time ago as the long-term solution for, for climate change. But even things such as this obsession with commons, you know, people talk about Eleanor Ostrom's commons all the time. If you go to any lefty conference or read any lefty book, Eleanor Ostrom was a neoliberal. So I think because we have disarmed ourselves in terms of saying we will not imagine what a future society will look like, we're constantly taking ideas from our enemies and being set on the back foot. And this is, uh, this is not good politics. So yeah, thinking, I guess, kind of in that intersection between the utopian and the practical, when it comes to something like SRM, I guess their argument would be that there's a technological fix that's right around the corner. And so the purpose of SRM would be to sort of delay the inevitable long enough that we can get these fantastical energy sources, that we can solve all these problems in the technological realm, and then we can phase out of SRM. And another thing that comes to mind, too, is that the 350 parts per million CO2 target that was, we're well past now, 419, I think, and still going up all the time. My understanding is that 350 is sort of like the limit for the pre-industrial balance of the atmosphere. And then the, the proposal that comes up a lot is carbon capture and storage, which I also understand has some major energy issues. It's a, it's a very, very challenging technological fix. On those fronts, do does half-Earth socialism aim at 350 parts per million, and if so, how? And if we are entering a time where solar radiation management becomes the norm, how do we reverse and get out of that without having sort of like the um, ripple effects, the, the, I can't remember the term for it, but where when you stop doing it, you start shooting in the other direction very quickly. And termination shock. Termination shock, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got into studying neoliberalism because I read a book by Philip Murawski 10 years ago called Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste. And he said the neoliberal goal is to have like not denial and say climate change isn't happening, right? But they're not stupid. 
right? Like they're not idiots, so they know what's happening. And then they have like really crappy cap and trade programs that don't do anything that will buy over the environmentalists for a while and make and give the appearance of doing something, but really nothing's happening. And then the long-term goal is geoengineering, right? And they've been kind of waiting for the science to develop and the you know, the, the, also the whole scientific community to get behind it. Because before 2006, before Kreutzen supported it, it was seen as a total pariah field of research. The people working out were seen as wackos. And I think this is also a point where we have to disagree with Naomi Klein, who's a great journalist and a great thinker, of course, but she thinks science is inherently on the side of the left. And that's not true, right? I mean, Kreutzen, who came up with the Anthropocene, who's a great scientist, can also say that geoengineering is a, is a good idea. They, one cannot rely on the scientific community, unless it's politicized and radicalized uh, and mobilized the way that it should be like the rest of the left coalition. But we're basically playing out living through what Murawski predicted, as in eventually things will get so bad that people will be crying out for governments to do something, and that will be geoengineering. And that was just, and, and we should have been mobilized the whole time to actually prevent this from happening. And it, instead, we'll see these neoliberals or these philanthropists and, and scientific entrepreneurs as our saviors. And that's really what's what's going to happen. But it, it won't make this argument saying, oh, bias time to then reduce emissions. I mean, it will definitely weaken any incentive to actually uh, reduce CO2 emissions. I mean, if we haven't been doing it before, why would they do it when they actually have the, the shield in place? It'll make renewable energy less effective because you have less solar radi- radiation coming in. And I think it would just kill the climate movement as well. So this is a completely crazy idea. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you're right that the, the proposal for solar geoengineering right now, the claim is that we're going to be rapidly decarbonizing over this century, but we might overshoot some sort of temperature target. Like maybe we'll overshoot, you know, 1.5 or 2 degrees of warming relative to a pre-industrial level. And to solve that overshoot, we kind of shave it off by using some solar geoengineering. And it's like a 20-year program, right, to kind of keep the climate cool, you know, cool enough. And then you kind of use it as, as your shield while you decarbonize. That is the argument. Like that is, that is the argument for solar geoengineering. And as Troy says, we don't buy it, right? We don't buy it. That might be the justification. But it is not going on our kind of understanding of how these sort of dynamics, these politics work. It's going to cause all sorts of problems. Like you think conspiracy theorists are bad now? Wait until we actually have chemtrails, right? Like, you know, you think uh, we're having these issues of climate mobilization, right? Wait until this is happening. Like it's going to cause madness, right? Like it's going to be, it's going to be weird, right? It's weird po- politics. And it's sort of hard to imagine that being like the simple technical kind of band-aid that it's being portrayed as. Yeah, this is this is where we, we push back against Malthusians and say like, oh, you know, human extinction is either at stake or it's the solution, right? Because I think uh, the environmental crisis is very bad, but capitalism won't collapse, right? And also humans won't go extinct. Instead, it's going to be a really shitty like half solution, which is geoengineering. And I think the environmentalists are going to be caught and the socialists are going to be caught off guard by, by this, right? But it's entirely predictable as well. In terms of like what is a half of socialist approach, 
you know, Drew and I are working on Anthropocene critique and this idea of methane emissions, because methane emissions are actually extremely reactive. They're short-lived, but they're much more reactive in the upper atmosphere compared to carbon. So if you cut methane emissions now, you actually would see cooling immediately, basically. And that actually would act in a very similar way to geoengineering. But we're not talking about that because actually to reduce methane emissions, you have to not only deal with the fossil fuel industry, but the even more, the even larger methane source is livestock, right? And people, again, don't want to talk about that. Also, rewilding on a very large scale, as in like two or three billion hectares, would actually succeed in sequestering a huge amount of carbon. The, the estimate we saw was over the next century, it would sequester something like 850 gigatons of carbon, and there's no other technology or infrastructure that could come close to that, right? Having like something like eight gigatons, gigatons a year of carbon being sequestered, it'd be much harder to do that with carbon capture or direct air capture and all that. So, I mean, there are solutions, right? And they actually, they would succeed to getting the parts per million in terms of CO2 down to a stabilized level in like the low 300s, which is still higher than pre-industrial rates, but it's obviously much better than 500 or whatever we're going to in the next few decades. The reason why methane is a useful target as a way to kind of get something that's like geoengineering in terms of its effect on temperature, but is not dangerous like geoengineering, methane lasts about 10 years in the atmosphere, and it's much more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2 is. So if you actually look at, you know, if we were to emit our current emissions for a year and then just kind of stop and see what happens. In the next 10 years, the heating will be dominated by methane. Even though we've emitted a lot of CO2, the methane explains most of the heating. And then in 100 years, CO2 would explain most of the heating because methane has reacted away. So uh, if you want to reduce heating in the short term, like the next 10 years, if you cut methane a lot, you see a dramatic reduction in climate change right away. It's not a permanent solution, right? Because the heating 100 years down the road will be from the CO2 we emit now. So that CO2 reduction still has to happen. But that methane, it does the same thing that the solar geoengineering is claimed to do, right? Like you can use it as a temporary means to cool, maybe if we're overshooting some boundary as a way of doing decarbonization. So it's a way of doing the effect of geoengineering without the dangers and the moral hazards of geoengineering. On the point about, you know, the prospects of reducing CO2, that 350 parts per million note, that has been proposed as sort of a safe level, but it's still considerably above pre-industrial levels. I would say that, you know, where we stabilize or where we end up is sort of a target that is, you know, in political flux, right? Like, you know, 350 is an arbitrary number in the same way that 1.5 degrees of warming is an arbitrary number or two degrees, which is the Paris Agreement number. These are all arbitrary numbers that have grounding in science, right? Like the more we heat, the more danger we're in, because the more likely we are to cross tipping points that make it harder to clean up our mess, right? If you melt a big glacier, you can't refreeze it. So you have to be conscious of these, these tipping points. And so that's sort of the inspiration for these uh, climate goals. I really don't like the language of like, we have nine years to stop climate change. At this point, it's seven years, right? Because it's by 2030, we have to reduce emissions by X amount to have X chance of staying within X degrees of heating by X year. That's where that slogan comes from. It's from a, a report on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The reason I don't like that is because it's saying that this number, which is not arbitrary, it's based in science, but that precise number is sort of in flux. Like there's always time to reduce the damage. There's always time to reduce impacts. And there's no line by which apocalypse starts, right? It's only worsening, right? So 
I hope that's clear. Like this, this, these lines in the sand are not super useful. You know, things like rewilding are a great way to reduce carbon because, you know, you're sequestering it back into the soil and supplementing that with forms of carbon dioxide removal that are mo more modest in scope than this, like build these giant plantations that can suck up huge amounts of air and then have these giant factories of, of carbon sequestration, right? Having a more modest version of that with a much more ambitious version of the technology we do have, which is rewilding, that's sort of the pathway we see towards carbon dioxide reductions. And that's a more feasible path. And then also pairing that with a much more rapid emissions reduction. So if you reduce emissions, you use rewilding, then you have the room for that technology to serve its purpose, right? Because, and you have that room to not rely on a technological miracle. You can just have sort of a more realistic expectation for what we can expect from these technologies, because we've reduced the amount that we need them. And where that takes you in terms of carbon, we'll never know for sure until we're doing it, but it'll make us a lot safer than what we're doing now. It's interesting with the conspiracy theorists. One of the classic conspiracy theories is uh, chemtrails, the idea that they're spraying something in the atmosphere for some sort of nefarious purposes, maybe even for geoengineering purposes. But yet you sort of look at the conspiracy theory world, and they're much more focused on this idea of people eating bugs, or they're forcing everyone to be vegan and this sort of stuff. And the actual sort of, it's, it's interesting. It feels like the conspiracy people should be really strongly against SRM. It's kind of their belief that SRM has been happening for decades, but they'd be more focused on criticizing you for advocating for veganism than criticizing SRM. It's kind of interesting. Well, I think the fact that there's so much conspiracy theory in the air these days is a sign of how weak the left is, as in, People know that the world is bad and is being poorly run and is not run for the benefit of the ordinary person. Like people are aware of that, but they also lack the critical skills to really interpret the world around them. They don't have either a theoretical framework available or they don't have organizations or associations or even friends to really guide them to think critically about the state of the world. And, in, and they also live in a, a meaningless world, right? They, they work in dead-end jobs and they feel powerless and all that. And so conspiracy theories are, are to actually find meaning everywhere in the world. And it's almost comforting that like, one group is actually in charge, be they reptiles or whatever. And the thing is that you know, neoliberals are quite happy to have just like garbage be in the public sphere. Like, they, don't, they think people don't really know anything anyways. They have this very anti-humanist uh, philosophy. And people think that neoliberals believe in homo economicus and like, this rational actor. It's really worse than that. They think people are, are complete idiots and it's only the market that actually understands anything. And you can see this uh, desire to ruin the public sphere going back to the 1950s with the work of uh, Ronald Coase, for instance. But it's, it's the left's job to tell people that they do live in a bad world, but also give them the tools to understand why the world is bad. But we are, the left is very weak and uh, things are getting, getting very, very bad, unfortunately. It gets harder and harder to actually organize because so much of the public space is being taken up now with these conspiracy theories. I'll just add a quick note that there's only a very small number of, of people that are talking about eating bugs. What a stupid political move because eating vegetables is perfectly good like I, I don't i don't understand like it's it's ridiculous like why, why would we want to eat crickets like you, we have had tofu for thousands of years and we have beans and we have all these things that are great i don't i don't get the political move 
wouldn't it be better to just be like, it, we'll have, we'll have cheap, delicious vegetables. I don't know. It's, <laughs> and it's better for the environment to eat the plants rather than the bugs, right? It's no, it's no advantage eating bugs. Yeah. And bugs are also suffering a, a biodiversity crisis as well. I mean, it's a very stupid proposal, obviously, <laughs> but you know, the fact that Bill, someone like Bill Gates is seen as an environmental thinker is just ridiculous, obviously. I'm not sure if I should say this. I'm going to say it. I've been thinking, I'm still an omnivore. I've been thinking about quitting. I've been thinking about quitting the stuff. So I'm going to put out the challenge to the audience. If there's any reason I shouldn't quit, I would desperately like to know it. So please, please reach out. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's how I became a vegetarian. was like, there's no good arguments for eating meat. Like it's just... He tried to debate people. Like, what, what can they say that's not ethically inconsistent? Like, like, we can just do whatever we want with animals. Or, again, you sound like a reactionary. They like, go, oh, it's traditional or it's pseudoscience, right? But uh, don't, be, don't be scared. It's not, it's not as hard as you think. Yeah, beans are great. Beans are good. They're way better than crickets. Me and Aaron ate crickets recently for an episode we did on eating the bugs and the conspiracy theory stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm going to say it. They were awful. It's just like crunchy and kind of gross or what? You can taste the exoskeleton. I used to work, um, I used to work as a, um, uh, I used to work as a janitor in SRO housing in the downtown east side. And so we would sweep up bed bugs and cockroaches after exterminations. And it tasted the way that smelled. I, I, we'll, <laughs> we'll say one more, one more Canadian tidbit because I'm Canadian as well, is that my rule is that unfortunately the worst person in the room is always Canadian. And that's, uh, you know, if you think about Jordan Peterson or, you know, stuff like that, that tends to be the case. But also the leading geoengineer is Canadian. And he, his big program is in Squamish, actually, to have a direct air capture company. So there's a very Canadian connection. And also the reason I got into all this stuff is through the tar sands. I was studying the tar sands and all the greenwashing stuff that happens there. And a lot of the neoliberal policies come through Canadian economists trying to work on the tar sands. And that just goes global as well. We're at war. War with the profiteers of animal agriculture. War with deforestation, biodiversity collapse, and climate change. We're at war with half-baked demi-utopian techno-solutionism, a lack of critical thinking, and an unwillingness to enter in righteous conflict for people and planet ahead of profit and manufactured desires. I am Felix Bones, and welcome to Narrative Wars because there's a war on for your story. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're talking about, among other things, the real secret origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, the hidden truth that they don't want you to know. But first up, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of Narrative Wars is brought to you by Patriot Plug's Anal Cavity Protector. Now, I don't need to tell you the global elite want to drag you kicking and screaming into the street and stuff you full of chemicals and tiny machines any which way they can get their grubby little hands on. Our friends at Patriot Plugs have a solution to one which way of accessing and contaminating your precious bones, the anal cavity. These are handsome, patriotic designs that include the bald eagle, the constitution, and a well-regulated militia, and they fully plug and block your anal cavity against the grabbing, unpatriotic hands of the baby-eating political class. These plugs can pull the wool from your eyes, and they can block unauthorized entry to your bones. 
And if you're worried about secret CIA, FBI, KGB bioweapons that have already gained access to your precious bodily fluids and bones, these precious patented plugs can also help you to cleanse your body with a patented Bluetooth-enabled system. Simply turn on the Patriot Protection System, or PPS, to gently vibrate out the various demonic things which the globalists have already infiltrated your body with. Patriot plugs are wonderful. I use them myself to protect myself from the globalists, from the New World Order, from the global elite. And if you use the coupon code HANDSOFFMYBONES, you will get 20% off. Patriot plugs anal cavity protector, because there's a war on for your bones. And what a wonderful product it is. I'm using it right now. All right, folks, here at the top of the hour, we're talking pandemics, the secret origins of coronavirus 19. We have the documents, and we're telling you the things that the mainstream media will not tell you. The origin of the COVID-19 pandemic is the Promethean desire for humans to dominate nature. I'll lay it out for you. Zoonotic diseases can be engendered or spread by practically any ecological disturbance. Animal testing gave us the Marbug virus. Cattle ranching gave us the Junin virus. Deforestation gave us malaria. Factory farms gave us MRSA. Factory farms and deforestation gave us the Nipah virus. Biodiversity loss gave us the West Nile virus. It goes on and on. Habitat fragmentation gave us Lyme, exotic animal trade, SARS, and so on. We know that the coronavirus pandemic started in bats, although the exact mechanism of transfer is hotly debated. It seems it was either through exotic animal trade for food, the wet market hypothesis, or through attempts to take Promethean control of nature, the gain-of-function research hypothesis. No matter how you cut it, folks, pandemics, including coronavirus and the next pandemics, whether that's H5N1, the avian flu with a 50% mortality rate, or another will be caused by the hubristic desire of humankind to dominate and control nature without understanding it, which is why we need to rewild our beautiful earth and address this crisis before we have a plague that knocks down our door and drags our children screaming into the street. That is what the meat industry wants. That is what the deforestation community wants. They want a futuristic virus to break down the door to your house and drag your husband or wife screaming into the street in front of your children and poison them with deadly zoonoses. But we'll be talking more about that later. Next, we got a friend of the show, a guest today. If you just pan over the camera, he's actually sitting here the whole time. Hi, Felix. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Now, we have you on the show time to time talking about different things that you're researching, different things that you're looking into independently. You're an independent researcher, as many of our audiences. Absolutely, yeah. I am funded by the people, for the people. Uh, head over to my Patreon if you want to contribute. and that's Patreon.com slash seriously wrong. Uh, yes, absolutely. And that keeps me independent. It keeps the money of, in this case, Big Nuclear out of my pocket so I can report on the truth. Whoa, whoa, whoa. About these things. Are you here today to explain some things about nuclear to us? I, I, I thought the nuclear scientists were the good guys. Well, look, I'm not here to cast moral aspersions on the goodness or badness of any particular nuclear scientist, but uh, I am here to say that the sort of environmentalist, green party, centrist, no-nonsense idea that nuclear energy is going to be the green solution of the future according to my research, doesn't really seem to be backed up. Could it at least remain part of an energy mosaic? 
I mean, that depends what we want. Think about it like this. Some of the most bullish proponents of nuclear energy suggest building 115 new reactors every year for 35 years, even though that will only take care of about one-fifth of our energy needs. Uh, so right, right, the non-fossil fuels. The amount of nuclear power we would need to build in order to meet our growing energy needs currently with the way society is going is enormous. A lot of people like to claim that nuclear is carbon neutral, but it's actually far from it. Nuclear energy requires mining uranium. And while some of the best uranium deposits, mining those can be fairly low in carbon, the more nuclear reactors we build, the quicker we're going to run through those uranium deposits and have to start using less pure deposits. And even with the current processes we have, the average amount of carbon required for mining uranium and for the permanent waste storage that's necessary for nuclear as well is well above the current averages for solar and wind. Uh, and with that promise of it going up in the future rather than down, it just doesn't seem like a good move on the carbon neutral front. No, well, wait, wait. So you're telling me that the graphs that you might see around saying that nuclear is a low carbon energy source... That level of carbon intensity is incompatible with the scaling up of nuclear, which could replace our energy use. In other words, it's more carbon neutral if there's only a little bit of it. Yes. Well, partially. There's also another major argument for the idea that it can be carbon neutral going forward, which is that right around the corner, we're going to have fast breeder reactors that right, can actually... Right around the corner. Uh, that was my next question. What about this right around the corner stuff? Because... Typical nuclear power produces uranium-238 as a waste product, and fast breeder reactors use uranium-238 as power. So, you know, using the waste of one facility to power the other one, and that wouldn't need to be mined at all, obviously. They're just using the waste from the other one. So if that could be made to work, in theory, it could be much less carbon intensive. Well, but that's the good. The problem with that is that despite hundreds of billions of dollars of investment and decades of attempting to build these fast breeder reactors, they remain not commercially viable. There's a few around the world that exist, only two that operate continuously, and they're both in Russia, and they both catch fire a lot. They all, I guess, them catching fire is a really big problem with the few fast breeder reactors that do exist because the sodium coolant used is prone to creating fires, which is just, you know, not something that is you want in a nuclear plant. Well, if I can just remind the audience about our product today, if, if you want to catch fire while breeding fast, use the coupon code zoonosis-pandemic-stop. And fast breeder reactors, what they produce as waste is plutonium. And plutonium, in theory, can be used for fission reactors sometime around the corner, around the potentially, corner. if uh, fission, workable fission reactors Fingers are Fingers crossed built. on 11-fingered hands. Exactly. But currently, the only thing that we can do with plutonium that we know works really well is building atomic bombs. So a lot of the fast breeder reactors that do exist currently are actually more for creating plutonium for H-bomb research than they are for actually generating power. And I guess the kind of nuclear utopia would be that you have a daisy chain, 
you know, uranium turns into blue blah, your blue blah turns into wee wee, and then you just keep on moving down the chain, generating more and more energy. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but that doesn't actually exist. Yeah, it does not currently exist. Proponents say it's right around the corner, but it's been right around the corner for a while. So, you know, I'll believe it when the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Speaking of being in pudding, is there any side effect when you have like a Fukushima type thing and that puts little particles in the air and it ends up in your pudding and you eat it? That's such a great question, yeah, because uh, another big claim of the proponents of nuclear is that nuclear is extremely safe uh, and that even with some of the more famous meltdowns, Chernobyl, Fukushima, those are, first of all, outliers. They don't happen that frequently. And second of all, the official death counts of both of those events are really, really low. Like, you know, it melts down, the people die right around there, but it's like, it's not like, you know, that many people die, but that's typically only counting immediate deaths from the actual meltdown itself and not deaths that may or may not have been caused by it in the years following the sort of environmental ongoing effects from that. So the, you know, estimates for the potential death counts from Chernobyl range anywhere from a few thousand to over a hundred thousand. For Fukushima, it's generally accepted that it's lower, but we don't fully know. And that stuff that goes in the air with like a Fukushima, does that get in you? Does that get in your yeah. bones or my, uh, I guess, muscles or? Yeah, I was going to get to Please that. Please do I knew, not tell I knew me it, it would gets be, in my bones. I knew it would be uh, interesting to you. You're very concerned about your bone health. Well, just think about our product today. But unfortunately for you and unfortunately for your bones or the bones of people no. around the nuclear test sites no, from the bombs in the no. 50s or... Leave my bones out of this. One of the more dangerous... I need those bones. ...outputs, both from nuclear bomb testing, from nuclear meltdowns like Fukushima and Chernobyl, is strontium-90, which is actually a bone seeker when it gets in your body, similar oh, to calcium... Uh, if it's in, say, bone the water, that should if, be my name. if it gets into your body, it seeks the bones and it can God. cause skeletal problems, bone defects, and unfortunately, uh, bone cancers and cancers of the tissue surrounding the bones. That is some twisted stuff. What kind of God would put a bone seeking? That's too, almost too disturbing for words. Yeah. Our children's that... bones and our grandparents' bones. Actually, one of the most famous uh, studies on this, and it just found that levels of strontium-90 peaked in children's teeth. It's a, the study was done on children's teeth bones because, you know, kids get fall their... Out. The only fall bone out. that falls out. Yeah, so it's easy to get them. You just, hey, dentist, safely. can you hook me up with some children's teeth? I've known guys who had bones fall off non-safely. That's what happens when you fight the New World Order. Sometimes your bones just fall out. Uh, that study of children's teeth and that strontium was in the teeth causing problems and whatnot is actually one of the things that led to the anti-nuclear movement of the 1960s and sort of the actual launch of the environmentalist movement in the first place. So um, I'm not saying the environmentalist movement shouldn't move on from being anti-nuclear if it comes about that we find a safe carbon neutral or carbon reducing way to go about it but you know currently i'm just i'm just not seeing it uh, there's a lot of hope uh, for things that might happen very soon but with what's available right now i just i don't see it being the panacea people promote it as so there you have it folks that is what the nuclear lobby wants 
They want to come to your house and drag your children screaming into the street, seeking their bones to fill up with deadly strontium. That is what the nuclear advocates, whether on the right or the left, want to do. They want to come to your house. They want to grab your husband or wife by the hair, drag them screaming into the street, and poison their bones. You know, to be fair, maybe there's some who don't know that that's what they want. Uh, they're just advocating right. no, the for it out, works of, in mysterious ways. out of ignorance. You have desires you don't understand that you have, and you might even be motivated by them. Yeah, that is the effect of their advocacy. Well, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your independent research with us. Uh, uh, no problem. They want to pull you. the wool over our eyes, and then we need to pull up the x-ray goggles over our eyes, but under the wool as well that can see through the wool. Yeah, that's how I like to think of my writing. It's the goggles that go under the wool. You can't put those goggles outside the wool. Oh, yeah, no. Then because you're then just blocked from seeing. Wool in the way. Yeah, exactly. You would miss out on the benefit of the goggles. And my biggest fear is that they're going to come and try to sneak another layer of wool under the goggles so that I'll think I'm still seeing through the wool, but I'm not. Well, that's why you need to get the right goggles. If you get the wrong goggles, they put a layer of wool in your anti-wool goggles, and then you're yeah. still seeing wool, even if you get them inside the wool. And that's what, yeah, the mainstream x-ray goggles all have that problem. There's wool Absolutely. inside them. I'd say they're the biggest profiteers of wool in the world, these anti-wool goggles that are not optimized, not sponsored of the show. Next up, after the break, we are going to have another independent expert researcher on to talk about chemtrails, solar radiation management, and putting sulfur in the atmosphere to block out the sun's rays. You might be surprised to find that we have better options for dealing with the climate crisis than these chemtrails coming to our children, dragging them out in the street and giving them asthma. Stay with us. So we, we've talked a little bit about it, but I wanted to give a little more space on some of the positive solutions. So when it comes to the democratic planning, you know, there's a chapter of your book that goes into a lot of detail about ecological planning and democratic planning, and also the concept of energy budgets, which is another thing that I feel like intuitively half earth might sound good to your your average Joe on the street. But when you talk about energy budgeting, and you make them think, oh, I'm not going to be able to leave my LCD screens on 24 seven anymore. I'm not going to be able to have my eight hour Fortnite binges anymore. Why are these necessary? What's what's can you persuade <laughs> the people with uncertainty about these sort of ideas uh, on the, the necessity of these ideas, the value of these ideas and how these ideas can be part of something they see uh, as a utopian solution and not a, a restrictive thing that, that makes them feel uncomfortable to think about. Yeah, this is, again, this is why we really like this idea of like utopian wholeness rather than piecemeal solutions, because it is a sacrifice to consume less energy. I think a lot of the energy we consume is wasteful and would be popular to get rid of. For example, like a lot of our use uh, of energy as Canadians and Americans is from cars. People do have an attachment to cars, but I don't think people have attachment to like sitting in traffic for an hour to get to work. You know, there are ways to get around that are lower carbon, more social, more fun. You don't have to worry about like spending $70 on an Uber because you went and got a beer with your friends or all these things like that, that a car centric society forces you to do. So there are many forms of like reducing energy that would be popular, I would say, and that there are transformations that would be quite welcome. But those welcome transformations don't get you all the way there. There are these ideas of sacrifice, like, for example, like plane transportation, it's sort of hard to imagine how that could get fully decarbonized without some reduction 
in load. And it's hard to imagine a fair world unless we kind of share like who can get on that plane, right? Like you shouldn't just be able to go on as much as you want. Like maybe X person who needs to go see their family should be, have that seat, right? Or whatever criteria you decide on. And so there are real sacrifices. And to us, those sacrifices are worth it because they avoid a world with like geoengineering or they avoid a world with a bunch of extinctions or a bunch of crises. They make the work of decarbonization easier because you're consuming less energy. And it also makes it fairer because we can get the entire world consuming an amount of energy that is sort of commensurate with the sort of a base level of, you know, material plenty, right? Like it's, it's not uh, abundance in this uncritical way of like, I can get a cell phone or a whatever, whenever I want, like I can consume whatever I want, this sort of fully automated luxury communism ideal. Uh, but it's a more realistic, you know, or a more subdued version where it's like, everyone has the materials they need to have a good life, whatever that means to them, but they don't have the materials they need to fly on a private jet wherever they want. That to me seems like a very noble goal for the left to go for a realistic goal and uh, a goal that has political challenges, real political challenges, because it will be experienced as a sacrifice to, for example, give up a car. But I think that this whole project taken as a whole does lead to a, a better world. Yeah, I, I think it will, this would be fair to the fully automated luxury communism crowd is there is a variety amongst them. And Aaron Bastani he does include rewilding and lab meat in his, you know, vision of the future. So obviously he has some ecological interest, but which is rare enough on the left and much appreciated. But I think also what the 2000 Watts gets at is that this has to be a global project that's fair, right? I mean, the environmental movement has often been centered on the global north and be in in the belief that we cannot ask people in the global north to give up anything and therefore people in the global south have to bear this burden and there's been this constant split between the environmentalists in the north and south where environmentalism sounds like a, a lack of development right or the entrenchment of inequality and that's not good enough right i mean the environmental movement has to be against this north-south divide and it has to be in favor of decolonization it also has to include the left and environmentalists and indigenous people. It has to be a big tent project. I mean, the reason why we're not getting anywhere in, in terms of the environment or conservation is that it's a very small group of people who have bad politics often and then who other people rightly distrust them. So I think when we say 2000 Watt Society, that's uh, one way to overcome that divide. And another reason why we support it is that it makes the other goals easier. So obviously, uh, fully decarbonizing the energy system is easier if you have less energy to actually decarbonize. Because if you actually want to decarbonize the full you know, Canadian or, or American uh, energy system, it will take quite, quite a bit of time because it's so massive. Uh, the other thing is that for other countries, let's say in Europe, they if they have a fully renewable energy sector, the whole country would be taken up by biofuel plantations, uh, or renewable energy in terms of you know wind turbines or, or solar panels because they are so they, they take up so much space relative to fossil fuels right so but if everyone has say only 2000 watts and even countries like Japan or Germany would then have space for rewilding and organic vegan agriculture right because we think that's you know there obviously would be trade at a global scale but this shouldn't be the dependence where, you know, industrialized countries stay industrialized and other countries are just exporters of, of food or something like that. So I think the the idea is that half for socialism is possible everywhere as well. And to your uh, 2000 watts is a big part of that. And it's funny that you say that 
Canadians that you talk to don't really mind the half-earth idea of like half the world being rewilded. I think that's only true in, in Canada, where it's a big country without that many people, and it's already a fairly wild place. But if you talk to people in Europe, you know, and as we have, and you say we need to have half the country be, be wild, people get quite angry because it's seen as impossible. There's no space for it. There aren't that many natural places. And, this, and Europe doesn't have large predators, and people are not used to living around wolves or bears anymore in the way that we are in Canada. So some parts are definitely much more controversial, and other parts it's interesting to see different reactions to our proposals. I'll maybe add one quick clarifying note. This point about land scarcity and renewables, that argument is most useful when thinking about biofuels. So if you know, as I said earlier, you know, we have this problem where a lot of our current energy use is not on the electrical grid, right? So if you want to decarbonize that, you either put it on the grid and take an efficiency loss and you have to generate a lot more electricity, which is maybe doable, right, if you cut consumption, but it's it's hard and requires some technological changes. The other way is grow a fuel using a plant and then burn that so you could run a car run using those fuels. If you're trying to keep the same level of energy use going, but you're using plants instead of fossil fuels, you're going to have to take up huge amounts of land, right? And this is a real prospect. Like this is, uh, you know, oil companies, planes, all these all airlines, they, they're all interested in biofuels, right? Because it's, it's drop-in replacement, right? You can keep the same machine. You just grow canola oil or corn or something, but it takes a lot of land. It doesn't really scale, even if it maybe looks makes sense on a budget sheet or makes sense as a way to promise decarbonization. It, it doesn't scale. So that's the, the source of our, our critique there. Something that really made the ideas of the book come alive for me was playing the half.earth game. I really liked that. It was fun. I played it a number of times. I'm curious where the idea of this game came from and why you decided to go with creating a resource management, managing global warming game, what the reaction that you've gotten to that and the, the sort of theory behind it. So, you know, we're Neuratians and people may not know Otto Neurat, but he is the great antagonist of early neoliberals in the 1910s and 1920s. And he is the one who actually comes up with the term scientific utopianism. And he's part of the Vienna Circle and also was a revolutionary planner involved in the Bavarian Soviet Republic. And he's a very interesting, very colorful, very creative intellectual. And what he did was after the failure of socialism in Germany after World War I, is that he set up a museum. And the museum was trying to show the working class of Vienna what the economy looked like so that they could imagine controlling the economy. And this is what socialism is for him. Socialism is the democratic and conscious control of the economy without using markets, because markets will always lead to what he called a pseudo-rational outcome, where you try to maximize a single metric, and instead have many different metrics that are incommensurate with each other, and they could only be understood in their totality. So you have like total plans. And he had a museum to show this and kind of use pedagogical tools such as graphic design, like isotype and, and so forth. And we don't have a museum. So what happened was we were talking to some designers about making a website for us. And then the, the designers at Trust, which is a network in Berlin, they said, we'll do better than a website. We'll make you a game. And then they put us in contact with a programmer and a game designer named Francis Cheng at uh, the Jane Family Institute in New York, and he was already thinking of making a game, and we worked very closely with Trust 
and Francis and a whole team of designers and research assistants and musicians. And it was a, a great team we, we had. And we wanted to give people this Neuratian opportunity to see these interconnections between energy production, you know, wildlife protection, you know, food production, and see the trade-offs between them. And then also see that we, we were not trying to force people down a certain ideological path. Obviously, if they wanted to do vegan communism, that's great. But we also allowed people to play as a Malthusian, to play as an authoritarian, to play as a consumerist, to play as a techno-optimist and all that. And then they can see what their futures look like. And that's how we imagine socialist democracy, is that we would compare our utopias, we would debate the futures that we want, right? But have debates based on some kind of rigor and some kind of numbers and, and, and some kind of correlation between these all these different factors that make up life on this planet, right? So that's what we want to do with the game. You really can't win the game not playing by our strategy. So you can take a geoengineering strategy and, and you can win. You can take a much more technological approach and, and do well. So the point of the game is to illustrate these different possibilities and allow people to remix and come up with their own goals. One of our original goals of the game is to really stress democracy by making it a massive multiplayer game where everyone would take on a certain region of the world and you'd have to negotiate together to uh, come up with plans, which would be kind of more like how things might really work. It would be a little bit messier. We talk a little bit about how we, this might work in the book, but and it would be it would have been very fun, right? Like to have uh, you know the Canadian player trying to argue with the players in other areas about like how much you know Canada should reduce its energy consumption, all these things, these negotiations that might go on. But uh, that ended up being hard to program, so we end up doing it as a little bit more of a classic like a uh, strategy game where you play as a, as a single planner. The reception's been pretty good. It's did very well on Steam, which and it sparked really interesting discussions because, you know, a Verso book, right, like this sort of left-wing publisher, it reaches a certain audience, which is has sparked a lot of interesting discussions. But Steam, turns out, you guys might know this, but some gamers have bad politics. And it's reached a lot more people than our book has. And it sparked really amazing discussions on forums on Steam and online. Like people are in the comments talking about socialism and what it means and is it possible and is this idea represented well or you know you know having real discussions and that's sort of the whole point um so the goal is to spark discussions and i think i think it's done that and people playing the game you know have been playing the game in classrooms lots of teachers have been using it as well some of the people online so we did get good reviews on steam but some people were upset where they thought there was an anti-nuclear bias, which is kind of funny. But the game's also being translated into a lot of languages. So it's being translated into German and Japanese and Esperanto. <laughs> so it's been like a second project that's equally rewarding to the book. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. And it was it was kind of like I'd been working my way through the book and I decided I was going to try my hand at the game. And then I ended up staying up to like two in the morning, playing it repeatedly. Like, no, I'm going to... I'm going to get it this time. How, how did you play it? What did you what was the strategy? Uh well my my first strategy was sort of like an acceleration degrowth hybrid. I can't remember the details, but I was like it was like a kitchen sink approach. I was just like, yes, yes to all. Like this seems like it might help. Yes. Yeah, cap and trade on babies. Let's see what happens. I made the authoritarian angry first. I think in pretty much every version I played but yeah, I eventually was able to win a couple times. And then I was, but it was like, 
it really is stimulating in a way. I don't know. It, it enriched my experience of reading the book as well, I think. Like, if it is at all possible, I would love to see this just be scaled up and made into a bigger, deeper game, put throw the budget of the gaming industry at this sort of stuff. I would play a Paradox interactive version of this game that, you know, has thousands of hours of gameplay and variations and all the different technologies and debating the global context and stuff. It's as a pedagogical tool, I feel like there's more stones to be turned in that field. Like there's, I could imagine playing a game like this a lot. Like I, I like civilization and stuff like that. So having a version of it that's like really oriented in like science and ecological politics. And yeah, like I said, like I stayed up late playing it one night, just one more game, just like Civ. <laughs> Civ. It's not easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a tough game. Yeah. Um, there's also a Canadian connection where uh, our musical composer, uh, Prince Shima, is based in uh, Vancouver Island, actually. And, he, and that's his original soundtrack. And then Francis, uh, he actually put a climate model like built into the game. Like we, we made it on a shoestring budget, but I think it's uh, people did some awesome stuff. And it, was, it was quite fun. But we would also like to make, you know, if any game designers are, want to contact us, that's great. We're actually talking to a board game designer to maybe make some kind of socialist board game. So, and it's also funny where our book has been dismissed by a lot of lefties, unfortunately, even though we got called Pulled Pot in the Left Review, which uh, wasn't very nice. But the reaction has been very good amongst actually socialists in the global South. Like the book's being translated to Thai, for instance, like Latin American uh, socialists have been very keen on the book as well. And then art people really like it for some reason. And, and Drew and I are, uh, Philistines in some ways, but we constantly get invited to art institutes to talk about the book. So hopefully we can do some kind of Neuratian museum thing at one point. I'm I'm kind of on this trajectory of like going from the fully automated to the degrowth realm and stuff. So it's like the right book at the right time for me also. Like obviously with any anything of scale, you know, like there's little ideas you have or disagreements, but the, the scale of... Um, thought-provoking that this book is ecologically it's it's at the top level for me there's there's few books that i've read that have been this challenging but also engaging in a, an optimism creating kind of way I, I really like the book but i really liked the game and like the two connected and, and made they deepened my appreciation of of either side of it i recommend it i recommend going to half dot earth and trying to play the game I bet you can't play just one round. Well, you're being too kind. You're going to make us cry. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very nice. Thanks so much for engaging with the project uh, at, at this level. It's much appreciated. Again, because we have gotten some, some bad criticism. It's, it's always rewarding to hear from people who, who, who like what we're doing. Because it's a weird, zany project, to be sure. Yeah, we, we consider ourselves weird and zany, too. So it helps. And I, this reminds me of, now that I've buttered you up, there was one thing that the there was a quote in the book, there's no escape between the trade-offs between luxury and environmental stability. And I'd like to push on this. I think it's true in a basic sense. But when it comes to sort of like convivial technology, and on our show, we talk about, we call it library socialism, of the logic of the lending library, challenges to the logic of private property, abuses, the ability to destroy the things you own, holding things in common. And we do take some uh, influence from Ostrom, although it's not our main influence. Do you think there is a space where we can, like at the top level, like, yes, we can't have the 
fully automated home robots waiting after us, individual nuclear reactors and filet mignon every night. But is there room for social technology and not technological technology in different ways of how we react, how we interact with one another to create a kind of communal ecological luxury that maintains some of the like some sacrifices have to be made, but is it not also true that there's some sacrifices we don't have to make if we find new ways of living together? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's exactly right. I suppose it depends on what you mean by luxury, maybe is, is the important thing. If you take luxury to mean what luxury means now under capitalism, luxury meaning like a really big house or a heated pool or sports car, or whatever, like those sorts of consumerist forms of luxury that are core to like capital's ability to reproduce itself and capital's ability to build wealth. That's what you mean by luxury, then no, I don't think that's compatible with the environment. If by luxury, you mean this sort of communal luxury or these ideas of, you know, social provisions or ways of living together and sharing uh, that are quite luxurious, I'd say absolutely. Luxury can be a politically contested term if you think that term is, is worth fighting around. I think one of the reasons why we don't use the term in the book is that we want to highlight real conflicts that we thought were kind of elided, like the fact that if you cut resource use, it actually is hard, like it actually is challenging, like it, it creates challenges. We didn't want to elide that by just being like, well, we can just have communal luxury instead. But that said, even though we didn't want to make that move in the book, I think it's it's true. Like, you know, this example of public transportation, it's not you know, you could imagine a really great public transportation system, but it's still not going to be the same level of convenience as a car. You can't just go out and get in it and go wherever you want right now without changing trains or changing buses or waiting a little bit, even if it's a great transit system. But public transit is so great because, you know, you can go have a drink with friends, you can read, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of resources and money on on these things. Like it's, it is a form of luxury. Libraries are a form of luxury. All these things these provisions in common, sharing these machines rather than having one in every home. These are all great possibilities. I think, you know, we don't draw very much on the degrowth literature, and that's because sometimes they can be a little vague in terms of like, what is a degrowth society like and what is actually being degrown or whatever verb you would use for that. And then I think it also has this last chapter where it talks about the good life. It says, you know, you don't need very much to be happy. And we agree with all of that. But again, as Drew's saying, we also want to stress that this is going to be difficult and it's going to create conflict. And that's part of politics. And we should not shy from that. Like our enemies are ruthless and they have a vision of the world that they want to create. And as long as we do not believe in something and are willing to fight for it, we're going to keep on, on losing and we're in a very severe crisis, so it's not surprising that there's going to be some trade-offs. But that being said, like I don't think my life is any worse having given up meat, right? I mean, uh, it's not like my quality of life has gone down in any meaningful way. If anything, it has gone up, right? Even though I'm using fewer resources. Or you know, a hobby of mine is bird watching. It's a pretty low-impact hobby. It's not like uh, heli-skiing or something like that. But I think it has its own beauty to it as well. So it's also, as you're saying, it's about, and as we quote in the, the book, it's about educating a new kind of desire, right? And that's what socialism should be. Socialism should not be the realization of the promise of capitalism, where everyone lives as a rich man, right? I mean, socialism is about creating a very different society 
and about the flourishing of all the aspects and all the facets of human personality that are now being muffled by our very stupid society that we live in, right? And that we should be developing those those projects and those visions of the future. So you're completely right about communal luxury. And, and we need to be talking about more about this stuff and also not be afraid of it, right? And when people say that we're austere or draconian, I mean, we're like, no, this is the good life, actually. Awesome. Well, yeah, this was a great conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show and um, great book. Everyone go to half.earth right now, play the game a few times and then check out the book. Great. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Possibility Watch, the only interview show that interviews people from various contingent futures to see the different branching paths humanity has the potential to take. So today we have actually two very special interviews from two very different potential futures branching off from today. First potential future, that's Earth 37912. Do we, we have you here on the line? Hello, yes, it's me. Hey, how's it going? Hi there, great. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show. This is so cool. Yeah. Uh, you always wanted to talk back to the past. Yeah, and I mean, I regularly talk to various contingent futures. That is neat. And I guess the big burning question that everyone is asking is, how is your future? Is it one that we want to avoid or one that we want to head towards? It's great. No, we love the future, the present, that's what we call it. I'd say run as fast as you can towards this beautiful future because everyone's so taken care of. And yeah, there was a few, obviously, since the avian flu pandemic that Oh, and I should, I should clarify for anyone. Your future is one where we just kind of went along business as usual, uh, sort of standard capitalist two-party democracy, not right. really addressing problems until they became a crisis too big to ignore in the immediate moment, right, uh, sort right. of status quo. We just kept doing that ongoing. Yeah, I mean, we were... Are you saying there was an avian flu pandemic? Oh, yeah, it was horrible. Oh, it sounds bad. Hundreds of millions dead. But things have turned around since yeah, then? Yeah, we're bouncing saying... back. I mean, what future doesn't have pandemics? Well, I have seen a few, to be fair, but... Oh, yeah, I guess you have seen other futures. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, because I we really think... this. Our kind of logic is that this is the way, it, the best way it could go, like best of all possible worlds. Oh, that's like a truism in your society. No, yeah, yeah. you should find old episodes of Possibility Watch since I am in your past. Right. Uh, there's lots of episodes of us interviewing different futures. So you should check some of those out because, yeah, it's not not all of them. But yeah. yeah that's great. I've, if I can find it, I would. Unfortunately, our local library was ripped down by a fire hurricane oh. in El Nino season. Well, we'll El see. Nino, maybe, sorry. Maybe we can find some place to bury some tapes deep beneath the earth that won't be dug up until your time. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. So, what can I say about our future? Well, our, th our sky is white. Uh, we bleached our sky white with sulfur to keep out the solar radiation. Our parts per million of carbon dioxide is at 650 and counting. Whoopsie. But we're going to be starting to turn that around soon. And as long as we keep pumping sulfur, which only causes a little bit of asthma and blocks out solar radiation from solar panels. And we, we've been keeping it in. We've got a nice, our actually, our temperature's a little cooler than yours um, mm. back in 2023 because we have kept the ratio right of sulfur to carbon dioxide. So it's kind of a perfect temperature. Like today's a nice day. The sky's white, uh, which is- a I always liked blue skies, if I'm being honest. I never experienced them. I grew up in this oh, world. right, yeah. They're pretty. Some people say that we've given up on atmospheric carbon, reducing it, but I, I'm optimistic. I think actually any day now, right around the corner, we're gonna be able to start sucking that out. Uh, there's been famines. 
that was no good, but we got yeah. through it just Ooh. fine. Yikes. So not every universe has those? Famines? Uh, no. You're blowing my mind. I thought I was supposed to be teaching you about the future. Instead, you're teaching me about alternative. You are. You are t- you're teaching me about your future. But right. Yeah. You're teaching me about the contingency of the place, the time and space that I live, which I assume to be inevitable. Yeah. The way you started, I thought you were going to start describing a sort of utopian society, like well, everything just, had become perfect. And well, I thought kind of, I mean, yeah, no, just things are going pretty well, I thought. You know, we've got a lot of different television shows. Oh, yeah. Anything good on? No, it's mostly crap, but. Uh, um, damn. I can get new shirts and pants whenever I want. Oh, yeah, and uh, cost? Cheap? Uh, uh, it's going up all the time. And how is cost of living in general? Are you oh, it's, and the other masses able to afford what you it's need It's tough. Easily, it's expensive. Or? I mean, you know, there used to be this conspiracy theory going around. They're, they're going to take away our meat from us. And that day finally came. Now it costs $10,000 for a burger. And I'm paid $0.1 per hour. Oh, yeah, so that's that's a lot of hours per one burger. Yeah, it's a lot of hours for me, but... So that's something like only the top 0.1% can afford, something like that? That's right, yeah, and they eat it for every meal. Right. What do you eat? Thin gruel. Thin gruel, not even medium gruel? Well, we used to have medium gruel. On the show, we sometimes like to take the thickness of gruel as a sort of bank shot for how bad a dystopia is. It's one of our dystopia scales. Right. Interesting how some different universes are. I guess every everyone's utopia is another person's dystopia. So I'm sure a lot of uh, most of the universes you talk to also have elements that they appreciate, but that that might seem alienating or strange to other people. Because I mean, some of them just seem straightforwardly good. It's people being like, "Oh, we go to the beach all day," and I mean, not everyone. Obviously, there's limited amount of beach, but we're allowed to do. Our, our beaches are protected by armed guards. Work and because oh, there's so much irradiated material in the ocean. Strontium. Yeah. Huh. And trust me, I got enough of that stuff in my bones already. I bet you do. I bet you do. But that's all the time we have uh, for you. Thank you so much for letting us know what your future is uh, like. Well, thank and you for this. Is this has been a weird little twist for me because I thought I was on a utopia segment. Uh, I didn't know beforehand. It was just we kind of let our segments tell us whether they're a dystopia or a utopia. And, well, I'd say uh, it's going pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's, objectively it doesn't seem like it is, but... Uh, well, you, the famines have almost stopped. Well, that's better than the a current over. famine. The famine's kind of over. Well, I hope things look up for you from here. Thank uh, you, bye. Moving on to Earth 793, another future we tried to find a future that was very different from that the future that we just met with and are you there on the line we got you yeah hey uh how's it going great great yeah we just talked to this major dystopia it was kind of a bummer he seemed in denial about it but i don't want so i don't want to put that on you that almost makes it sadder yeah it does it does i'm hoping this isn't a double dystopia how how are things for you in your future i mean it's tough I mean, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, there's there's challenges, um, and mm. but I mean, every society has its challenges. The thing that's really been bothering me lately is we have this uh, we have this energy budget, 
they set the energy budget too low. We got a global energy budget for every citizen. You kind of spend your energy almost like a oh. you choose what to um, in order to protect the planet. Electricity rationing is what you're saying, kind of. Yeah, it's it's challenging uh, in some ways, but honestly, actually, I know a lot of people who don't even use it up. So they end up donating the extra. So is it just a very generous, like you produce a ton of uh, energy in your society, or is it that you found ways to live that are less energy intensive, that people don't use it up? That's it. And actually, to be fair, the energy budget has mostly increased over time as we've brought more more things on- online. But we the, we've got a growing population, and so. But I oh, mean, oh, that's good. Growing population, no pandemics or famines or no, we didn't. Um, there's been scares uh but we've mostly kept the pandemic stuff under control for for a while i actually only learned about what pandemics were recently Hmm. we're an egalitarian society there's no enormous gap between the rich and the poor which is nice oh Um, yeah that is pretty good and do people generally have enough of what they need you mentioned energy budgets but anything lacking more than enough more than what you need but you can barely travel around the world right so no uh jet plane wherever you need to go whenever you need it kind of thing yeah and i i usually i will stack up my vacation days to all one part of the year so i can get kind of kind of like a third of the year off at once a uh, whole third of the year that's and that that's way really i good. can use well it's not the best it's one of our actually our measures of a utopian society is uh, how what percentage of a year do you get off and really? one third of a year is actually it's really high Really, it's not the highest I've ever seen, but yeah. it's, it's, really I'll tell you, it's not the highest. That's for sure. If it was, I'd put a gun in my mouth. There's no hope for our multiverse. Well, just for comparison, uh, in the past, your past, my current time, it depends on country, but it's somewhere between zero to six or seven weeks, generally vacation time around the world, like what a country would mandate for people. So that's Jeez. that's far less than three months. Yeah. Yeah. F- don't please don't tell people. Who live here that because everyone's pissed off about like they're saying with only a third of a year there's, there's no time to live your life right oh well i mean fight the good fight get it to a half a year that's what i say yeah we've, we've got half earth socialism we should have half life socialism oh yeah so you have half earth social you've rewilded half the earth yeah actually it's we're up to 62 percent and increasing so hmm. and um, the, the way that affects you, me honestly but it's fine the the way that you got there uh, was that by kind of just letting things progress as they were and uh hoping the people in powerful institutions would do what's right or was there a sort of fundamental reorganization of the status quo into yeah, something yeah there was different? a rupture there was a there was a cataclysmic kind of rupture i guess it was mostly oh what do they call it the 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 times of change the times of change so there was kind of this big consensus a consensus that formed in lots of places around the earth, kind of a bottom-up challenge to institutions of power that I guess they had enough social power that they were able to make demands of systems of power, but there was enough consensus that people in institutions largely, not entirely, believed in transitioning towards a society that would be ecological, democratic in nature, and made different plans, and there was some resistance to it, and uh, there were some skirmishes, even uh, scattered violence in some cases, uh, with some private armies trying to, you know, uh, the phrase we'd use is keep the world from turning. We just sort of, like a revolution, right? A revolution is like a circle turning, rotating. Mm. Um, so it's not, it wasn't as much about like, rah, we all rise up or something like that, but that kind of happened in practice. Um, and there was some, there was admittedly, some conflicts, some people who benefited from the old system, not ultimately, obviously, because this revolution was intended to be for the good of everyone, and I think it was, 
but they in the short term yeah. had sort of a wool on their eyes right and maybe yeah. put the goggles on the outside of the wool I, don't, I can't be sure or had the wrong kind of goggles right i'm really glad that those metaphors have survived the wool goggles x-ray goggles metaphors um, so most common good. metaphor that's great. Uh, well, yeah, I got to say, um, your society sounding pretty utopian. When you started at the beginning, you were like, oh, it's, you know, it's pretty good. It's not that great. I was kind of worried I was dealing with another dystopia. But, yeah, no, I'd say on the scale of things, this is uh, it's up there. It's utopian. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of sorry to hear that for other people uh, in other universes because this, because it's where I live, it feels almost like there's ups and downs, challenges and so on despite that no yeah most utopias uh, have that still challenges but sort of the middle part of the you know the ups and downs the middle level of that is uh, higher than uh, what many alive today currently could imagine honestly so you talk to a lot of different universes eh? like yeah is there, is there any where they engage in large-scale cannibalism and treat it like it's normal and get like really mad if people say that cannibalism is is wrong or what a fascinating specific question yeah it's just a, a something i thought of yeah and the answer to that is definitely yes yeah Interesting. that's a do you think people's imagination comes from knowledge of other universes or is that just a coincidence because that kind of came to me in like dream. all imagination is a sort of latent knowledge of different possibilities or? yeah maybe i don't know yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it works like that. We have a special machine that allows us to cross multiverse barriers. Oh, cool. But Does that still exist in the futures that you look at? Uh, some it does and some it doesn't. It's actually owned by my parent company, and they're kind of well, they're kind of an evil corporation. Right. Evil um, parents? Your evil parents own a corporation? No, 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 no. The parent corporation of the company that owns us owns the patent for oh. this machine. So parents like a metaphor. For- oh, right. Yeah. If you don't have corporations in the future. Yeah. They would call like a company that owns another company, the parent corporation sometimes. That's neat. Well, I got to let you go. Yeah. No, um, we are running out of time. Because but- uh, we're having a big party with all and all my friends are going to be there. So I got to go. Well, that sounds great. Yeah. yeah it's, it's fine. It's normal. Say, say hi to them for me and uh, enjoy your night. Thank you. Well, have a good one. Well, there you have it, folks. Various contingent futures from the branching possibilities that humanity faces. What will we choose? Will we choose to proactively address climate concerns with realistic solutions that that bring our carbon footprint down to where it needs to be? Or will we continue on the course we're currently going uh, until it crashes and we have to blot out the sun? I guess only our decisions from this point on, uh, we'll decide that. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, until next time, watch out for all the possibilities. So there we have it. That was Troy Vitezzi and Drew Pendergrass, Half-Earth Socialism, Interview, Utopia, audio yeah it's a well-informed and particular utopian so in in, before the interview i alluded to maybe you won't agree with every part of it and the reason for that okay i was talking about the veganism stuff oh really i thought it was more the rewilding like some people would just be like no we need 60 percent of the earth uh right 80 percent. we need 80 percent rewild 90 percent. there's those annoying 
80 percenters or the 20 percenters uh, they just fight all the time online and they're so at each other so no yeah i agree the veganism thing is uh, yeah they actually in the book they talk about the relative biodiversity protection that comes for different percentages including i can't remember the specific numbers but generally the more of the earth's surface you rewild the more biodiversity you protect right and 50% is kind of a, a compromise in some ways. I like 50, uh, just intuitively. Like, it feels like there's enough space for humans, and then there's like space for everything else. And yeah, I like the idea of like leaving a lot of the earth without us uh, just getting our grubby fingers in there all the time. I mean, maybe a little bit of stewardship, but not, you know. Yeah, it's uh, I like that. Yeah. And uh, so on the veganism stuff, I felt the need to preempt it a little bit because having read this book and done the interview, I was kind of excited about this stuff. I found it very persuasive. And, and like I'm I live as an omnivore, as I mentioned in the interview, and I posted on my Facebook about the land math on producing meat versus vegetables and stuff. And I got what felt like a really strong response from different people about I didn't, and I wasn't even endorsing veganism. I, w- I like I literally wasn't in- you read my post it doesn't mention the word vegan once I just say we need to reduce meat consumption I'm kind of excited about this idea I've it's something I've sort of known for a while but like really having read the numbers and this book and spoken to them I'm like yes they're right and I got pushback from people and they're like you can't be vegan and it's like this kind of like raw like it's like these uh <laughs> it's <laughs> it's it almost makes me think of like like someone just like coming with these maniac eyes and there's like blood dripping from their lips and they're like, no, no. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, I got a strong pushback on that when I posted about it in very soft terms. And I was not even saying that we need to make everyone vegan. We got a pushback. So my challenge is if you disagree, I would love to hear alternative plans. We'd like the utopian world is open to describe alternatives where the use of animal products can be part of the, a balanced whole. And I encourage that. And I would love to read that. Like personally, when I think about my ideal utopia, I think there is room for some degree of animal products in my ideal world. Yeah. If there was different plans being voted on and one of them included like, you know, 25% as much meat as we have now, or even 15 or something, I feel like I would probably vote for that plan over the vegan world plan personally i'm pretty sold on needing to reduce meat consumption i mean i was before this interview like it's been the environmental arguments are really compelling and drew and troy make them even more compelling here with a lot of numbers and it feels like uh it's kind of a foregone conclusion for me that kind of in north america other sort of western countries or whatever there's like a lot more meat consumption than is sustainable but yeah something in me is just like mm, no no i don't want to that, i don't want to give it all up crazed like, eye mm, meat dripping from mouth yeah like, it's still it's in cannibals there. on the mm. edge of society like no i'll never change our ways <laughs> maybe it'll go away if i'm like forced to be if everyone else was doing it if it was like if it was the plan we all voted on and society was ve- i you know like i wouldn't be like secretly keeping cows somewhere to like i don't care that much but (laughs) if i if i can i would like i would like some animal products but yeah i tried recently to cut meat for a couple weeks and to cut animal products for a couple weeks and i found it like entirely or yeah i kind of 
I needed to do it entirely first. And I told myself that I was going to allow myself a little bit at a better pace, kind of like a reducitarian kind of thing, which is already my mindset that I'd strive for. I usually will have meat if like I'm at someone else's house and they'll make meat, but I won't usually cook it at my house. And, but I don't do like the label reading thing to make sure that there's no animal products. Occasionally get milk, although I'm not wild about milk. Cheese is different story. I'm a big milk fan and eggs. Cheese is good. Honestly, of the three, I would give up cheese before milk or eggs, But if you were curious. Right. No, uh, I, yeah, I'd give up milk of those three. But if, I found it really challenging. And part of the reason it's really challenging is because you're just surrounded by all these neon signs that are like, meat, meat, everywhere you go. And like, you yeah. go to the store and you need to like do this little, like put on your half moon spectacles and read the details of the label for animal products and stuff like that. And I think those are really some of the biggest barriers to people taking on vegetarianism. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, me too. Um, if, if it was as hard to find meat food in society as it currently is to find vegan food, like you have to ask for special options or like there's a few places that have meat dishes, but most don't. Or, you know, if it was that, like I would probably just not eat anywhere near as much meat. Uh, but our society is currently like really like set up to – sort of push meat on people and subsidize it and all that. So yeah, like that stuff can easily go to um, like, even like I was thinking just like buying burgers at the grocery store and I'm like, but all the veggie ones are more expensive and they don't taste as good. And I was just, buy beef burgers. I, I have had that thought before. And then after this interview, I was like, I decided to make my own burgers. So I just bought some ground beef, but I also have wheat gluten powder because I've been like baking bread sometimes. And if you add extra gluten, it's good. And as a recipe for seitan on the back. So I was like, oh, I could make like partial veggie, partial meat burgers, which is like appeals to me. And I looked online, I was like, does anyone make those? And I could only find one company that did and everyone was making fun of them. Like, oh, who's the consumer for this? Like meat eaters won't want it and vegetarians you're won't just, want you're it. You're reading like, this and you're starting to cry. You're like, I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was just like, oh, it's so dumb. Like everyone has to be either like a hundred percent meat and I'll only eat a full beef burger. <laughs> like if it was like half and half. I feel like it would be good. And the ones I made myself were good. It's interesting. If you go without eating meat for a while, and I've done this before, when you don't eat meat for a while and then you return to meat, it starts having like this weird rotten taste to it. And like I've read other vegetarians talking about this. It's like once your palate starts adjusting to the non-meat eating thing, there's like this corpse-like quality that returns to meat. And it's interesting. A friend of mine who is a vegan raised this point to me. Shout out to Brendan. Really good point. A lot of these studies that talk about the limits of vegan diets and stuff, they talk about the, the the need for a level of careful planning in a vegan diet to make sure that your nutritional needs are met, uh, but they never make such claims on meat-based diets, which are just the same. Just eating meat doesn't magically make sure that you have all the nutrients you need. With any sort of diet, there's careful planning and thinking involved to make sure you have a balanced diet. Yeah, if you're just eating like burgers and fries all the time, uh, you're going to be missing out on nutrients whether they're veggie burgers or meat burgers like yeah. you need to eat lots of vegetables and yeah there's like there's a you know vegans know this but eat b12 the main one maybe a few other things you need some like omega-3s or something but get those from flax seeds but maybe it's better to get epa and dha there's like all this fiddly stuff but i mean like in general it seems like health organizations agree that like vegan diets are fine and you don't need meat to live 
I think when I think about my utopia, like where I would vote on the multi-plan spectrum when it comes to this stuff is to preserve certain animal products in limited quantities, have a generally vegan vegetarian diet, but animal-based supplements as part of a balanced diet. Like, yeah, you mentioned omega-3s and stuff. I'm sure there's there's some balance on that spectrum is what I'd ideally when I'm using my sort of utopian imagination. Yeah. And if we're like basing our society on like energy consumption and like, like what's sustainable and what isn't, I feel like there's lots of kind of like luxury things, I guess, for lack of a better word, like you can sort of choose to, you know, pick your indulgences. <laughs> Maybe some people want to eat more meat. Some people want to travel more or something, you know, like you can yeah, kind of like some people want the, to leave on their LCD screen longer and yeah. play more Fortnite. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. So yeah, to our vegan and vegetarian audience members, we're on the ropes, keep pushing. And actually the, the, the issue of like the challenge of have a vegan diet being like half moon spectacle label reading and walking around a world where there's all these neon signs flashing chicken beef and you're like ah, ah. um one of the big solutions that i've thought about is the concept of institutional veganism so i think individual consumer choices are inadequate they generate all these like weird social games where people get they flip out at each other People get really defensive about their food choices and people will try to justify sort of like the nutritious benefit of meat. But what they're really trying to defend themselves against is the idea that they're a bad person because it's really hard to do the, the right thing. And it's very easy to do the thing that they know is probably not best. And like all that stuff that comes out of that. Um, so like we need to structurally incentivize through mechanisms of government or whatever to make it easier to make those vegan choices harder to make those meat heavy choices for example like uh, so city hall your local city hall they have like banquets where they serve food to people sometimes or they have like lunches public resources are going to buy food items and there's no ideological thought about that whatsoever they're hiring caterers or whatever just city hall is just an example but the same would apply for corporations or other governments or any sort of institution uh, the dsa or whatever and I think that organizations like that being like, we're not going to buy meat products when we put on banquets, when we have dinners, when uh, political organizations or government organizations or corporations or if you come and eat at our dinner, there's not going to be meat at that dinner. It's the kind of choice that an organization could make. And then over time, the impact of that is way, way larger than what individuals making choices would be able to do. Yeah, they probably get a lot of complaints. I could just imagine the like those people who showed up in your comment section showing up in the comment section of the like I went to your banquet and there was no meat like what is this wokeness what well, is yeah this? you can buy some diapers for them too if you want because <laughs> at a certain like if you love meat so much like B Y O M uh, or like you know there's a stereotype that vegans are annoying and that's well earned don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah, even <laughs> even Troy uh, mentioned in the interview. Uh, but yeah, anti-vegans. Anti-vegans are... Also really annoying. And the more you know about nutrition and the more you know about the climate impacts of meat, the meat guys start seeming like way more annoying because they have all the annoyingness of vegans and then they're also empirically wrong. Yeah, I mean... There's also a lot of vegans who say empirically wrong things sometimes, but yeah, it's That's uh, true. Just to be fair, both of them are horrifically annoying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
So yeah, that's like the biggest, I think, thing people probably might have caught on in here. There's probably other little... One thing that I sort of caught on, but I felt like kind of a sidetrack, was Troy mentions a couple times that Eleanor Ostrom is neoliberal and conservative. Uh, he categorized her as those. So after the interview, I was like, oh, I'm going to Google that. I've never heard that position before, and I couldn't find much on it. So we asked Troy specifically, and he sent us a bit of uh, writing on why he views her that way. And yeah, it's interesting. It's a perspective on Ostrom that I hadn't heard before. And I don't want to like claim this is his basic argument. This is what I took away from briefly reading the thing he sent us, is that her focus on decentralization and on the non-necessity of having top-down planning in commons management uh, is something that like neoliberal people have really been able to latch on to to justify their own sort of like market decentralization like oh the market can plan things and we we don't need we don't need one big plan that we're all following or anything we can just like uh, work it all out individually amongst ourselves and we don't even need a government like this kind of like hyper neoliberal market ideology has benefited a lot from her work it was kind of what i think the argument of the thing he sent was yeah i thought the most damning part of it that i read is that she had advised someone at some point to focus on climate solutions that weren't planned yeah, weren't like government impositions, but were more yeah, polycentric stuff like carpooling and stuff. I don't have the full context on it, but it does seem does seem bad. And I would imagine I, he alluded to writing more about this in the future. So if you're interested in the left wing critique of Ostrom, stay tuned to Troy Vitesse's work because it's 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 interesting whether or not you're inclined to agree. Yeah, I think there might also be some shades of like we're a bit more anarchist leaning. I think there may be a bit more sort of. Uh, like state socialists, having a planning bureau in Cuba. And there might be some sort of tensions there why we are a bit more partial to the sort of decentralized Ostrom vision. But like, I definitely see how that could like neoliberal could uh, use those ideas for its benefit. But I do think like non-state, non-market commons management is like, it's good. You read any book, you're going to find places where you could have points of contestation or conflict or conversation. But I found this book really, really strong. The arguments of the book really strong. The game was really fun. It was a great interview. I'm all on board with Rewilding. I think that's... Yeah, me too. It's great. I, I'm going to whole hog incorporate that in my utopia. I mean, maybe like you mentioned, we live in Canada and like it's easy for us to imagine that because a lot of Canada is already still just sort of wild nature. There's a lot of space that we don't use quote unquote use for anything and it's uh it's nice i think it's uh it's good i support it so to wrap this up there are two things that i want to bring up one thing comes directly from the book they point out that when it comes to something like solar panels when it comes to like renewable energy sources it's not enough to scale up the amount of solar panels you also need to scale down the amount of fossil fuels and we can't assume that one is going to displace one another we can already see this happening in the energy sector where an increase in more renewables is not correlating with a decrease in other sources of energy so therefore decreasing those sources of energy is a political decision that needs to be made and argued for in politics. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's not enough to expand energy into more ecological sources. 
energy must also be contracted in the less ecological sources. And the same applies for vat-grown artificial meats and stuff that in the future, things that people are hoping for when it comes to animal agriculture. It's not enough to have a larger vegan food industry. We also must contract animal agriculture. And the vast majority of animal agriculture is like factory farms that are worse than your wildest dreams. The idea like, oh, of course I'm against factory farms, but I prefer other sources of meat and so on. That's great. Everyone basically agrees with that. But if you look empirically at where the meat comes from, it's factory farms, like 99 times out of 100 or whatever. No, yeah. Entailed in actually being against factory farms to being like, okay with them disappearing is like eating less meat. Like the reason that factory farms exist is because you can produce a whole lot of meat in like, I don't want to say a small landmass because we use a ton of landmass to produce it, but like... Yeah, especially with like the, the crops, the, the feed stock. But we can't make as much meat if we don't use factory farms and we need to use less land. Yeah, and so th- that was a big idea in the book that clicked with me in a new way. And it's maybe I knew it on some level, but now it's like integrated is just this idea that it's not enough to grow the good things. We must also politically decide to shrink the bad things. And that's not going to make everyone cheer. It's not going to make everyone happy all the time. But sometimes there are necessary things. There are hard pills to swallow about reality that we need to work through. Uh, And that's one of them. And the other thing I wanted to bring up, I was talking to a relative of mine recently, and he was kind of going on his pro-meat bacon man kind of stuff. And I said to him, I think this might be an effective argument for some people. It's an effective argument for, for, for me. We can't, when it comes to the ecological crisis, we just can't go the way that we're going without having some sort of horrific system shock down the line. So if you remember what it was like at the beginning of coronavirus, where like people who are really online kind of knew about coronavirus about seven days before politicians started talking about it. And there's this kind of buzz, like something horrible is happening. And like people are starting to stay home early and stuff and like that kind of shit. That experience, I think, is going to happen to us again in our lifetime when it comes to climate, where there's going to be, you know, crop collapses. There's going to be some horrible thing. It's going to become clear something horrible is happening. And we're going to be kind of aware of it slightly before the politicians talk about it. And basically, my argument to him was this. Either we have to make real steps to slow what we're doing and change what we're doing and transition to a society that's sustainable, which will involve making some sacrifices, and that might be a higher cost of gasoline, that might be eating less meat, or we can encounter that hard reality, we can hit it like a wall, we can have a a week of whispers about the horrible thing that's happening, and then have our lives change forever like did with coronavirus. And the version that we get by planning and transitioning and being conscious of it and being real about it The outcome of that is probably better than the outcome would be if we hit that wall and we have like a massive system shock and everyone who loves eating meat all the time suddenly can't get that meat because it literally doesn't exist on the shelves unless you're willing to pay like $5,000 for a steak or whatever. So yeah, like maybe there's like a reverse luxury argument too that can make these pills a little bit easier to swallow. Either we plan to land the plane and we work through all these these structural challenges that come from you know, working our way down from the climate crisis, or we hit that brutal wall and we experience all of the kind of austerity and limitations and whatever that we would otherwise, but to a heightened degree in an unpredictable way, 
because <laughs> uh, my the the person I brought this up to actually was kind of convinced by it. Like the coronavirus metaphor helped to think about like how sometimes like a metaphorical asteroid comes and hits your way of life. And I was like, this is what people have been saying for a long time. And luckily this person does acknowledge that climate change is real and so on. So because I think that that two doors argument is kind of core to this book. We can use the door of planning, transition, rewilding. And yes, there'll be sacrifices along the way. But to not take that door, to just keep doing what we're doing, it might end up looking way, way worse in the end anyways. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, as always, hit that like button and subscribe, folks. Uh, <laughs> this has been the Seriously Wrong Podcast. Thanks for listening, uh, for your time and attention. Uh, hit us up in that comment section. Let us know what you think. Check out the book and Half.Earth. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Half.Earth. I enjoyed the book, but the Half.Earth game was like a really unique experience. It, was, it, it helps you think in a different way, on a different level, when you actually play with these variables and see it happen in real time. Also, if you're here at the very, very end of the episode with us, probably a good sign that you might want to head over to our Patreon, get a whole bunch more episodes, bonus episodes. We just did a bonus series on Jordan Peterson, got some other things in the works uh, like that. We are your humble hosts. This is Seriously Wrong and uh, adios. We love you in an appropriate parasocial way. Yeah. (laughs) You're seriously wrong. You're seriously wrong. You're seriously wrong.